Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, and today we're tucked away at the local supermarket here in Bridgeton, Maine, where we were vacationing for the fall holiday. Well, I guess you can say the vacation's over. Look, I'll just go right out and say it. Things are totally fucked. What started with last night's storm, more like a goddamn hurricane if you ask me, pivoted quickly from sobbing rain to misty-eyed clouds, the likes of which were, are, something else. There's something in the mist. We heard noises in the back. People are missing. People are scared. You know, people are funny creatures themselves. We take for granted how society masks us all. The comforts of society, I mean. Sure, as long as the machines are working and you can dial 911, all is good, all is well. But you take those things away. You throw people in the dark. You scare the shit out of them. No more rules. You see how primitive they get. I've seen how primitive they get. It appears we may have a problem of some magnitude. Whether or not we make it out alive, I don't know. But fortunately for my sake and my co-host's sake, we're all hiding away in the soup's office. You can hear Mrs. Carmody making a fool of herself downstairs. That shit crazy as ever. But maybe not. Maybe we're crazy. Well, we'll find out today as we gather around the store. Sold candle we snagged and revisit an all too similar story to ours. Frank Darabont's 2007 adaptation of Stephen King's novella, The Mist. This month marks its 15th anniversary and we're here to shop through it all. One aisle to the next. Now, you're probably wondering... Didn't you all cover this when you reached Skeleton Crew? Yes, we did. And you can scroll way, 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 way back up in our feed and find it right there in season two of our series. But here's the thing. It was a brief discussion. Really, you know, we really only grabbed 10 items or less if you want to keep it to the uh, supermarket theme. So we're going to change that today. As many of you know by now, we're going back to the old films we didn't dig deep on in our ensuing Long Watch series. Over the past year, we've revisited Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption, Brian De Palma's Carrie, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. And uh, Darabont is back up to the plate. Uh, and this time, we're going in with not one, not two, but four shopping carts to make sure every can is open, or at least most of the cans. Hell, we even have the leading man himself, Mr. Thomas Jane, returning to the show. You'll probably find that interview in this feed, barring the length of this episode. We might bundle it all together. You know, maybe maybe the bags might not support all of it at once, but either way, you'll find it in there. So stick around for that. For now, though, allow me to turn the floor over to my colleagues, 
Justin, say hello. Share your connections with The Mist, including the novella, and also your relationship to Darabont's work. Well, let's keep the supermarket analogies going. Uh, this is employee of the month, Justin Gerber. <laughs> and nice. uh, I've uh, been a huge fan of this movie for a long time. My, I have a vivid memory of seeing this around thanks. Well, I say vivid, but this is how I remember. I'm not sure if it's correct. It was Thanksgiving weekend-ish. It was around that time. I was visiting family and I believe it was Abbeville, South Carolina, home of where they filmed Sleeping with the Enemy, by the way. Oh. Joe Roberts movie. Brown Eyed Girl, Van Morrison. Great it's, sequence. Great yeah. sequence. And, um, you know, there was some downtime in between meals and people visiting and stuff. So a lot of members of my family wanted to go see Enchanted, the Amy Adams movie. I think I believe the sequel is coming out uh, shortly, by the way. Let's give as many plugs as we can to Disney. Yeah, Disney yeah. Plus. Um, we love <laughs> Disney Plus over here at Losers Club. And... I was like, ah, you know, I don't know if I really want to see that. So, but I didn't know that the mist was playing. So I figured, okay, well, I'll, I'll hitch a ride in this van. So, you know, all my nieces or my cousins and my aunts can go see Enchanted in Theater One or whatever. And I'll go see the mist by myself in <laughs> Theater Two. So, <laughs> God. I remember meeting with them. They were all, the movie ended. <laughs> And uh, I'm walking outside, and they're all there like, oh, wow, such a wonderful movie, you know, what a wonderful musical, this and that, this and that. Disney, you know, it's Disney, it's Disney. And I am just shell-shocked. And I'm like, let's just go home, you know. Because uh, I was familiar. I read the novella years earlier. I was very familiar with the novella. I knew that there was a different ending. Mm-hmm. And I read that King preferred it. I didn't know what it was. And I'll just say that is not what I was thinking it was going to be i, I didn't have that in the back was. of my head like oh maybe he's just gonna kill everybody and then the army's gonna show up <laughs> did not have that on the uh on the old board so yeah i really loved it then and i uh i guess i would be connected to darabont right and i've been a huge fan of frank darabont since shocker uh shawshank redemption mm-hmm. but we talked about this a little bit last night mike there was a usa movie that he directed like in the early 90s late 80s called buried alive with Tim Matheson, Jennifer Jason Lee, and William Atherton. And I used to watch it all the time. And it, yeah. it's gone. It's gone. You can't find it anywhere now. You can't. You can't. You can't. It's so wild. I mean, it was just so present. As much as we say that, you know, we live in a spoiled era where everything's available now. Uh, I don't think so. Barry Live's not available. And that was no. definitely available even at video stores in the early 90s. So, you know, rights will always be an issue. I, I love I love Frank Darabont. What can yeah. I say? And it's... Uh, I think it sucks that his last movie is The Mist. Not because it's a bad movie by any means, but the fact that he hasn't made a movie in 15 years and, and when, by all accounts, will never make a movie again is uh, troubling to me. Well, I'll something we'll today. certainly be discussing today uh, yeah. because I think that's a lot. That's going to be uh, the, the ghost that lingers throughout uh, or this mist that we're going to be uh, speaking on within. Uh, Rachel, did you spend... Thanksgiving 2007 with The Mist. Uh, when did you finally come upon this movie? Hey, this is Rachel Foodhouse, checker number three. <laughs> and um, I did not catch this on Thanksgiving in 2007. It's funny. It was one of those times where I had like moved out of state and had like dated this guy. And he, like he was like super into Stephen King, got me to read The Stand for the first time just you know ended as an absolute disaster crawled back home 
And uh, yeah, seeing the mist, it's, looking back now, it's like, maybe it was a good idea. I didn't necessarily like go check that out in the theater, probably would have left just feeling worse. But yeah, so it took me a few, you know, a little bit longer, but then everybody was talking about the ending, the ending, the ending. And so finally, it was just like, you know, yeah, I have to see this. And caught it after a certain amount of time had given me some distance from that person, you know, and yeah, lives up to the hype. I was so pleasantly surprised. It was something I felt like you go into it and you're like, oh, I mean, it's Darabont, you know, so you go in with good vibes, but you never know how it's going to play out. And yeah, not necessarily the feel good movie of the year, but a great, yeah. great ride. Loved it oh. from day one. So well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, are you a big fan of Darabont's other films like The Green Mile or Shawshank, even The Majestic? Yeah, I am. I mean, it's Darabont. And I'm just a big fan of him as a person. He's one yeah. of those directors, like, and I'm sure we're going to get all into that. But the more you hear him talk and like get to know him and his work and how he works with other people, it's just how can you not be a fan of this guy? He's just got such a passion. And yeah, so I'm excited to talk about that more because I think he's really one of those people that uh you know unlike the shining kubrick episode we did yeah <laughs> this is going to be quite different i think in that regard so <laughs> absolute 180 more yeah, yeah you're right on that one uh all right well keeping it weird as always ashley you were uh, one of the first losers to raise your hand for this one i, I take was. it this is a, a favorite of yours in the king canon it sure is and i guess that makes me the bag boy that dies first actually <laughs> bag boy that dies first cassidy um <laughs> <laughs> I was, and I kind of told this episode on our um, hot takes, or I told the story on our hot takes episode where when I had bought um, the book, it was a re-release right before the movie came out. So it said the mm. mist on the book, <laughs> but it still had all the other short stories in Skeleton Crew. So I bought the book thinking the whole thing was the mist. <laughs> and as it ended and I was like oh gosh what's gonna happen and then I start reading about like a haunted doll and I was like where are we what's going on is this another family that's about to get destroyed by this mist um and it turns out the story was over and I was devastated because I actually um and we'll get into this I prefer the book ending uh we'll talk about that later but Interesting. yeah I'm glad so <laughs> I did see it in theaters that Thanksgiving uh weekend I had just read the short story maybe a month prior and um i loved it i was yeah. all in no one i went to see it with enjoyed it quite as much but i was were ride you, or die were you a, a fan of darabont's work beforehand or you know had been yeah aware? well yeah. i at the time you know i was i'm a youngin so at the time i was this was 2007 i was 18 so i um that was kind of before I was really into who directed this, who wrote mm -hmm. this, who mm -hmm. it was a movie to me. And I had seen Shawshank Redemption. I had seen The Green Mile. I had seen, you know, I had seen other movies that he had done before and like loved them. But I didn't know that I was seeing a director who had done other Stephen King works or that I'd seen his works before. Um, but I am now today an extremely big fan of Darabont. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sad so that he's gone. I mean, well, gone, yeah, well, gone, yeah, conventionally away. in the sense of, you know, people working in Hollywood. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, I saw this uh, the days before, like, honestly, opening night. And I saw this with a uh, fellow loser, Dan Caffrey. 
and we were really jazzed and excited to see this. And I was excited to see it with Caffrey because at the time he was the, the one person I knew beside my pal, Bill mm -hmm. Hansen, that uh, was all in on Stephen King. And so I remember us going to River East down in Chicago to go see it. And it's one of those movies where like about 30 minutes in or no, not even 30 minutes in 10 minutes in, you know, you're in for something special because it's like it's a, it feels very communal. And we'll talk a lot mm -hmm. about that with just the, the ensemble nature of it all. And uh, I, I remember you know, just being so heavily invested in it and just kind of turning over to Caffrey and we were just kind of like, this is fucking great. And then the ending happens and there weren't a lot of people in the theater. Cause again, I think it was like a Wednesday night or Wednesday or Thursday night. And, um, <laughs> I just remember us sitting there and like letting the, you know, the, the, the gladiator esque Marcus music playing over and then it dissipates. And then you just kind of hear the, the crawling and stuff like that, I guess from the credits and we're just sitting there and Caffrey was kind of like a little, he was definitely taken back because obviously, you know, he reads anything. He If he reads a page and he's page, age four, he'll remember it, you know, at age 35. <laughs> so he was sitting there and he knew the, the the ending, you know, in the back of his hand. He was just like, man, that wasn't what I was expecting. And we were kind of mixed about it. And it, it, in the sense, like I, I was a huge Thomas Jane fan. So that's kind of really what pulled me in. I loved Darabont, but I, Jane was where I was always like... <laughs> I mean, I saw the fucking sweetest thing in theaters because of Thomas Jane. So like, I, I just, you know, I, I was a huge fan of him. So to be able to, you know, see him on this leading man role again, um, was really exciting. And I just remember us sitting there and just being like dead. And I still liked it because I think I, I loved where, you know, just being able to see Jane, but I think Caffrey was a little more mixed on it. And then obviously we've come around to it, but this is a really special movie for us because I think, you know, not only was it 15 years ago, it's 15 years since I moved to Chicago. I always think of my first memories of Chicago being tied to this and um, another great film, Rob Zombie's Halloween. So for me, it's it's always a, a, a real special place in my heart, but um, really excited to talk about it. And I'm also really excited to talk about the the, the, the variant, the black and white variant, because that also mm. has a very special place in, uh, in our heart because uh, we screened it at the Music Box for our first film festival in 2018. So a lot of stories, as, uh, as they say in Swingers, but we've got a lot of uh, history to get into. So, uh, you know, and, and I'm, you know, shocker. We all love Frank Darabont. So I think that this is going to be a great discussion and um, we might as well get into it. So why don't we grab our rakes, shovels, whatever we found in hardwares and start digging into the production history of the film and what better place, the loading dock. I'm, I'm sorry about the kid. Hey man, we didn't twist his arm. Yeah, he's a fucking kid supposed to be stupid what's your excuse huh get out of here go back in the market stay by the door don't say anything to anybody not yet all right well in the loading dock which is basically the dairy um private library <laughs> and every other <laughs> section that we have we're gonna be talking about the history of the production of this film um i'm gonna do a quick rundown and then uh, we'll dive right into it. So as I mentioned, as we mentioned, directed by Frank Darabont, screenplay by Darabont, cinematography by Rowan Schmidt, which uh, who Justin will be going into just in a second for now. Music by Mark Isham, Rachel will be going into soon. Release date, November 21st, 2007, right there for the turkey. How about that? Budget of 18 million, box office of 57.3 million, has a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes and a staggering 58 on Metacritic. Um, James mm -hmm. Bernandelli, Bernandelli, I think I'm saying his name right, mm -hmm. 
Justin, do you want to read his quote on what he his his review for this? Because it's sure. a pretty good review. Yeah. He writes, The miss is where the horror film should be. Dark, tense, and punctuated just by just enough gore to keep the viewer's flinch reflex intact. Finally, after a long list of failures, someone has done justice in bringing one of King's horror stories to the screen. But definitely not the feel-good movie of the season. This is a must-see for anyone who loves the genre and doesn't demand, quote-unquote, torture porn from horror. See, that's an important... I, I'm glad that, mm. that he mentioned mm. the torture porn there because, as I like to do with a lot of these uh, movie episodes, it's kind of like basically give the, you know, show the, the climate that horror was in. And I, I didn't really do it so much for this one because I, I really went deep into 1408, which was released the same year. But torture porn was certainly um, in the zeitgeist. I mean, this is before the found footage uh, renaissance that would occur two years later with paranormal activity. So I feel like we were in a lot of the echoes of what was the, the Eli Roth hostile torture porn era. Also, obviously, saws were coming out every year. Um, There's still a lot of remakes that were happening that seemed to be built like up. The Hills Have Eyes remake. Yeah. yeah. And- House yeah. of Wax and House of Wax, yeah. yeah. Just like really merciless movies that uh, I think actually a, a lot of that um, a, a lot of that tension and a lot of that um, expectation of gore certainly is felt in this movie. I think, but I think it's taken to a different, more uh, prestigious uh, element. Um, Rachel, read the next review from Michael Phillips. Sure. Yeah. So he said. Good and creepy. The mist comes from a Stephen King novella and is more the shape, size, and quality of the recent 1408, likewise taken from a King's story, than anything in the persistently fashionable charnel house inhabited by the Saw and Hostel franchises. See, it's all on the mind. Yeah, it's all on the mind. It's <laughs> it's crazy. No, when you were watching this in, in 2007, uh, Justin, did, was that in the, the mindset when you were going into this that it was like, wow. What a nice 180. Why even going into it, I assumed it wouldn't be chasing after the coattails of, you know, your Eli Roths and your Darren (laughs) Bozeman's. Um, God bless, obviously. But but that was definitely in the back of my mind. And I kind of, I think we discussed this on another episode at some point. We've only talked about these things for thousands of hours. I know. But uh, I was, yeah, I was out on Saw, especially, well, at the time I was out on Saw. I'm pretty much in now. But I was definitely out on Hostel. I yeah. it just wasn't my 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 bag, man. You know, I, yeah. I just wasn't into that type of a of horror. And I really haven't come back around to most of that 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 period either. I Same. think it's not the best period. Although I do think the Hills Have Eyes remake is actually pretty good. It is, yeah, it's very good actually. But yeah. other than that, it was a. I do think it was a pretty bad time for for at least mainstream horror movies. What about you, Ashley? You're, you seem to be agreeing with us with the torture porn angle. Was that yeah. you're out on that? I, I remember seeing Saw and being like, eh. and then, you know, of course, the end happens. And I was like, OK, was that movie fucking awesome? Or was that movie fucking awesome? <laughs> and then they made, you know, I don't know how many freaking more. And I just I got so tired so fast. It was it's definitely the least interesting genre, uh, horror genre for me, I think. And I yeah. don't mind gore. I mean, if you show me blood IRL in real life, I will pass out. But I can watch the goriest shit ever and be fine. So it's not even a matter of being squeamish. I just think it just wasn't interesting yeah. to me. Were you uh, a sawhead, Rachel? Oh, my gosh. That's like one of my favorite theater moments in life. Right. Was seeing Saw. <laughs> like went to it, not having any idea really what it was. 
and like just remember like leaving it with my friends and just being like oh my god like he was there the whole time like it was like mind-blowing to me and so I've always had a really soft spot for the Saw franchise and you know just when I thought I was out, you know, they pulled me back in. You know, oh, yeah. Somewhere oh, yeah. Next October. Like, I think yeah, about seven I, or something. I think about four of those sequels are actually better than the first one. I think it's yeah. a really strangely pretty fun series. I don't know. I, yes. Well, we no, all love it's... Agent Strom and, and Eric Matthews. So I think that, that's <laughs> a big yeah, part Peter, of it. Peter Strom. Please give him his. Uh, Peter Strom. That's, yeah. that's Luke from Gilmore Girls, right? Absolutely. And then no, not Luke. Luke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Luke. Luke. Yeah. Because then the other guy that they, they get that looks a lot like Luke from. And we can't go down this road. We, we have too so much to discuss. Um, <laughs> well, look, there was a critical review. Uh, we talked about Michael Phillips and, you know, Chicago boy, local boy, like this movie. Uh, his rival, maybe not a rival, but his no, colleague, not rival, colleague not his rival. colleague, yeah, yeah. Uh, the late Roger Ebert was very critical. Uh, <laughs> Rachel, do you want to read this review? Sure. Yeah. So he gave it two stars out of four and said if you have seen ads or trailers suggesting that horrible things pounce on people and they make you think you want to see this movie you will be correct it is a competently made horrible things pouncing on people movie if you think frank darabont has equaled the shawshank and green mile track record you will be sadly mistaken i think Boo. i think this is a bad take, bad <laughs> take I, 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 I will say not in his defense necessarily, but I mean, Siskel and Ebert were notorious, not, not notorious. Siskel and Ebert do not really like a lot of horror movies. They didn't. No. Over the last, you know, between like 1978 and 2008. You know, they just didn't. It wasn't, it changed a lot, obviously, since they were younger. And they never, they could never see the other side as yeah. to why this might be enjoyable or why people might enjoy these types of movies. They, could, they just never did, so... I wasn't shocked to see that he didn't like this at yeah. all. Well, also, probably, like yeah. even just like comparing it to Shawshank and Green Mile, like, that's the it, like it's yeah. just like yeah. that's not it's not the same thing. And he wasn't trying to make it the same thing, not that's, at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the one eighty from those. Well, and that's the thing that he. I mean, he talks about that in the making of this movie about how um, you know there. Well, we can talk about him right now. Let's go. Let's just jump into Dar Darabont because uh, you know this is the man of the hour for us. I mean, if you really want to talk about it, I'm sorry, Mr. Jane, I love you to death, but this is, we're going to be talking more about Frank Darabont than I think anyone in this, um, this production. This is his third film uh, for, for Stephen King. Now that wasn't really, there's another alternate universe out there where The Mist isn't his third film. It might be his first. So he had this in mind um, mm -hmm. since the beginning. Um, you know, he, since, since, since the beginning, before he even got into directing films, um, he had wanted to do um, either The Mist or Shawshank Redemption. Um, and obviously he went with 94 Shawshank. <laughs> and he said in the making of documentary um, for The Mist, he says that really kind of put him in a more, um, in a different, uh, God, what is the word he said? A perception, a, per a perception, perceptive lane, I think he called mm -hmm. it. And obviously, um, you know, when he eyed The Mist uh, to follow up for Shawshank, he eventually wound up being convinced to do 99's The Green Mile. So he's consistently staying in this prestigious lane of like, mm -hmm. you know, dramas. And to be fair, 99's Green Mile has some supernatural elements, but I definitely say it's more of a drama than, uh, you know, anything else beyond that. So, um, so how do you make it three times the charm with King? Well, technically four times the charm, because you really want to get technical. His, uh, he did a, his first film is a dollar baby for the woman in the room. And that's, mm -hmm 
honestly what actually got him connected with King. Um, Cause from there he was able to kind of basically talk to uh, King and basically say, yeah, I want to do this movie. I want to do that movie. And, um, and actually King says in the making of that, he had no fucking clue that Darabont had the idea to make the mist um, before Shawshank. He always just thought that he wanted to do Shawshank and that was that. Um, so this is definitely a passion project uh, for, for Darabont. So how did it get there? Well, the film rights for the mist were entrusted to him by King. And so Darabont finally, after all this time, set up a first deal look with Paramount and then started to work on the screenplay by 2004. And by 2006, the project had already been dealt from Paramount to Dimension. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we're missing a big elephant in the Hollywood boardroom. And that is <laughs> 2001's The Majestic. Really, with the exception of uh, Buried Alive, his only film that's uh, non-King. Um, his only film, and it's non-King. So uh, it was the follow-up to The Green Mile. Didn't really go well for him. It arrived in mixed reviews, and it was a colossal flop the studio. I think this is a very underrated film. I loved it when it first came out. I just revisited it on Friday ahead of this episode. I found it really effective, I think, especially in this day and age. I think Carrie is great. I think Laurie Holden is charming as ever. I think it's really clear, especially in hindsight now, that Darabont was wrestling with something with the Majestic. Anyone else here seen it? I feel like this is a movie that has absolutely been deleted from pop culture i tried to find it's not streaming right now or maybe it's not ever yeah and i was i was actually gonna watch it maybe this weekend because i'd never seen it um i was kind of bummed to see that it's not available anywhere it should be this is a movie that i feel like it should have been on hbo max i'm actually surprised it Mm -hmm. wasn't um rachel you've seen this yeah i i mean i saw it a long time ago i haven't seen it recently but i just remember it being like really heartwarming and like sweet and emotional and i i liked it but yeah Justin, surprising. Did, I don't know. Did, did you ever see this when it came out? I saw us opening weekend. Yeah. And we we left halfway through. Are you kidding oh. me? Yeah. Oh my god. I Ouch. was not and you know, I, I, look, I'm as I can be as sentimentalist and everything else, but I, I guess maybe at the time it was just well, not it was the, two months I was after not, 9/11. So. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> no, but I figured, no, but I figure like that would be the movie that I would want to see to kind of make me feel better about something, but you know, this is back back in the day too, when we were insane and going to see these movies at you know ten thirty uh-huh. at night and eleven o'clock at night after being at school since six o'clock in the morning. So I, I, I'm I'm sure a lot of it was just me being tired and all of, all of us kind of just being spent. But I, I just never went back and revisited it. Uh, I need to obviously because I got to complete my my Darabont filmography. But yes, yeah, strangely enough, I just never went back to it, and I never mm. uh, yeah. It's, that's my that's my that's my big take on it. Well, I I wanted to revisit it. I I, I wanted to bring it up here, especially because I, I really do think it's a solid film. I think it got maligned a little bit at the time of its release because I do think that we also have to remember. Like I just mentioned, a, you know, a bunch of horror movies that came out in the the climate of the mist. A lot of movies that were in that same realm or feel good you know vibe of the majestic were coming out around the same time too i mean this is an era where you saw like legend of bagger vance and hearts in atlantis which is another king property and (laughs) a lot of these dramas that seem as if they're lensed uh with like gold (laughs) like like everything just looks very bright and like janice kaminsky did everything um but i so i do think that there was probably a fatigue by it and it also doesn't help that the majestic landed like 
I don't know, between two of the biggest franchises of all the, the birth of the two biggest franchises of all time, which is Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings. I, I don't think a lot of people were really like running to go see this movie. Um, and I feel like even with Carrie, his kind of stock had already kind of fallen a little bit um, by then. But um, anyway, I bring it up just because I kind of want to stand for it a little bit. You know, I think a lot of it is uh, what put Darabont in a weird place. But you could see in that movie he's wrestling with a lot of themes I think ultimately pour over following the mist and where his feelings about Hollywood are. And there's a lot of um, boardroom chatter in that movie where like Carrie, who's a screenwriter. Wow. Shocker. Cause you know, Darabont is, is a screenwriter that he came into this, this industry as a screenwriter. And he's just basically hearing the dumbest fucking ideas tossed around by studio suits. And I, I just get the sense that nowadays in hindsight, the movie actually speaks a lot of volumes to where Darabont is, but I'm getting ahead of myself again. We need to go back to how the hell he got into the mist because we are talking about the mist. Um, and it's a little bit of a winding road. And, um, you know, before he landed at the food house, Justin, you have some notes here. He, he worked with one of your favorite TV shows uh, to kind of prep for this. Um, yeah, well, he landed at the Shield House. The Shield uh, House. Eventually, uh, yeah, like, like I said, Mike, it had been between his work on The Shield and The Majestic, it had been six years yeah. since he had done anything. Which back wow. then is, is a kind of wild thing. People were churning stuff out so frequently um, if you were a director in Hollywood at that point. But yeah, Darabont had been a huge fan of FX's The Shield, which I believe is one of the greatest shows of all time. And it debuted around the turn of the century. And it, that ushered in this era of big screen stars who were pivoting and not slumming or succumbing to television. Like when Glenn Close was on as a main character in mm-hmm. I think it was season four that was huge. a huge huge deal yeah. people couldn't believe that that was happening um so another thing he actually also directed though in 2007 that i totally forgot about and i'll ask any of you here and i guarantee none of you know what this is does anybody remember the show reigns from 2007 nope. oh man that does ring a bell that, no. he was he was involved reigns. with this yes <laughs> it was a jeff goldblum show for nbc Oh man! Wait, like R E I or R A R A I N E S? Like I think it's his last name is Rains or something like that. Oh, but well, listen, it lasted I think a month and a half and then it was gone. But he did direct the pilot for that show. I think he was just kind of getting his feet wet again. But more importantly, like I said, though he he did direct an episode of The Shield, and I'm honestly I'm not sure we would be sitting here talking about The Mist at all if he did not take that gig. Yeah. Uh, I actually found an audio commentary that he provided for his one and only episode that he directed, which is a very pivotal season six episode called Chasing Ghosts, which uh, Shieldheads will tell you features a very uh, crucial confrontation between two of the leads of the show. And in the scene, Darabont lights up when he discusses what he loves about the scene. In addition to the performances, he says, I love the grain. There's something about it that's so sexy to me. The 16 millimeter adds that grit. And that is ultimately a look that he wanted to have for the mist. Mm-hmm. And I think they experimented with it being digital at first, but they went, I think they went with 35 millimeter. They didn't go with 16 millimeter, oh. but yeah, they totally affected the look of the movie. And in an interview with Lil Just Library, they've been around forever, by the way. I, they I really have. I, I keep yeah. forgetting how long that great Stephen King website's been around. Uh, but shortly before production got underway, uh, Darabont said, probably the smartest move I've made is to hire the team I worked with on the shield to come do the mist with me. The cinematographer, both camera operators, the editor and the script supervisor. Their skills are very honed in the style after five years of working on that TV show. Believe me, they're going to save my ass and make this schedule possible. 
And I also found an article from Comics Alliance. It's, it's now favorited at the top of my toolbar. <laughs> oh, yeah. God bless. Look, they got a good interview here. Um, that covered Darabont's appearance at Comic-Con back in 2007 for The Mist, in which he further explained why he wanted the S.H.I.E.L.D. crew to work with him. He said, All of the camera work is improvised. Complete scenes were shot from beginning to end. And he said the cameramen were like other actors. You never knew where they were going to be. It's I want to check here by saying, yeah. this also calls to mind how they did the show Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much the same. They just had a couple people. It feels like, like a said, documentary. Two camera operators. It exactly. Does. It, it yeah. feels lived in in a way that that's something I, I think Shawshank Redemption is one of the greatest movies of all time. That feels like a like a cinema yeah. yeah, that feels like scope, and it's a this is a big movie we're watching, and it's it's just they will never be as intimate as the mist feels because of the way he made the mist. No, I mean I was watching. I mean again in that making of that I watched, which is in that rare Blu-ray that I spent like two hundred dollars to get because it's like <laughs> fucking out of commission. Wait, um, what? I have yeah. that. It is. Oh yeah, hold on to it. It, it is. It is worth so much I money. Need like, I, bones? I got some. I got some I bad no news idea. for you. If what? you just if you get voodoo. The app, which is free. It's still on. It's they they took it off like a year ago though. So it's that's on why now. I, no, it's, oh, it's back. Man. Oh, it's man. four dollars. Uh-huh. Well, this is like when I you brought up Friday Night Lights. It's like when I fucking spent three hundred dollars on the vinyl for the movie soundtrack, and then they like literally three months later they're like, "Well, we're reissuing it," and I was like, yeah. "Motherfucker!" Thirty dollars. So like, um, I so when watching the footage though behind the scenes, it is chaotic how they did some of these scenes. Like the, the the stuff when they, you know, they're all bundled together, like fighting, especially with the butcher knife and everything. Mm. There's like three cameras that are going on. And like, even Jane was saying that like, at points like to, f- because they would basically just try to catch everything and they made sure that everything was caught, right? In, in any action oriented scene. And like, Marsha Gay Harden was talking about how she would do symbols so that she would know the, to, to get off of her to move to someone else. Um, Thomas Jane was talking about how you pushed like some of the camera operators to swivel away to get catch the the energy and action that he was seeing firsthand mm. too, and I think it really adds to that 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 uh I mean Chaos. that intimacy that you're talking about yeah um and also just like how they were doing it, I mean it did feel very theatrical and they talked about it in that like making of documentary and I also think that just the fact that it seemed like they had everybody that was in the grocery store there at mm-hmm. all times like whether or not they were necessarily in the scene and I think that that style of filmmaking and just being able to have everybody kind of witness what was going on. Like it did feel very organic and intimate and just having this whole ensemble being able to react accurately. And as, you know, as a unit, I think is really powerful. Well, a lot of movies don't do that. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I was watching uh, with my husband who hadn't seen it in years and years and years. And we rewatched it this weekend. And at one point, um, when you know the two brothers one of them gets like burned and is in the back and he was like who is this and i was like he's the guy who had the mop and the the lighter fluid and he caught on fire and he's like yeah but had we seen him before and i was like oh yeah (laughs) i mean he was there yeah for sure but like did he have any lines before i'm not sure and like movies don't do that it's like you know and i understand why i understand like how expensive it is to give an extra line you know things like that but but in this case, it, it is interesting because you don't see that happen all the time. You don't see like just random people in 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 the scene get to have their random moment, and yeah. it was great. Yeah, it's it's kind of they, there's a quote that that Darabont talks about how he 
some of the best horror movies were shot under duress. And and I agree with that. I mean, like Night of the Living Dead was that way. Halloween was that way. Like some of our favorite movies of all time were shot under these incredible limitations. Now I should add, there were limitations because this, and this speaks a lot to the conviction of Darabont. Um, there are limitations because he took an incredible budget cut and uh, a limited shoot because he wanted to keep the ending. And the only people that wanted to keep the ending were uh, two monsters that are worse than the ones that we see in this movie. Uh, the, <laughs> well, at, least, the at least one is. At least one is, yeah. I can't say, I guess mm-hmm. I can't speak for both of them, but let me, yeah, whatever. Uh, the wine scenes. So they were <laughs> basically like, yeah, we believe in this ending, um, you know, but we got to cut your the, the, the budget. And Darabont agreed. And I think, Justin, was it because they, because he used the shield uh, folks because they were on like an eight-week eight week hiatus or well, it's something? It's like you said, they were able to, to – he had such an efficient crew and they all knew each other. It yeah. wasn't like he was hiring the best of this person, the best of this crew, the best of this crew. Like He hired a team. He, yeah. he hired a team. It was a team. And that's the thing. It's it's kind of like what also reminded me of was when you know Hitchcock had been doing these huge movies for years. I think in the late 50s he did like North by Northwest, Vertigo. Yeah. But then for Psycho, he uses Alfred Hitchcock Presents crew, hmm. you know, and that when wow, you that's look at so that movie, similar. That it, is... it's yeah, and it's black and white. By the way, when you think about that, after yeah, it for color, and it reminds me a lot about that. Is you just kind of want to make it this really tight, efficient movie with a reliable crew that could knock it out, kind of on a TV schedule, as opposed yeah. to you know your normal three or four months of filming, a which movie. is so. kind of prescient or foretelling for where he would go after this, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the walking dead oh, with most of this crew. Absolutely. Um, so I have some quotes that were provided to me through articles through our uh, historian, Brian Burnett, who would be praised all, all the time on this podcast. Um, Brian finds I, I, I Google stuff and I don't know, and I can't find it, but no. then he finds 10 articles about the same thing. I don't know how he does. <laughs> he's stuff. the true scholar. He's the true scholar and he's probably smiling right now. Uh, knowing we're talking about him. Uh, Brian, thank you very much. One of the articles. So, this is from June of 2007. Darabont had uh, been speaking to USA Today, specifically our pal Anthony Bresnikin, uh, one of the, the the last great journalists out there. I'll say that hyperbole out there. Um, Has Anthony Bresnikin just always been like 30 years old? I think this so. Is yes. 15 years ago we did he's, this article? He's a what king character 15? himself. Yeah, he's like Meet Joe Black. <laughs> he's got great hair. <laughs> Let's not compare him to Meet Joe Black. Yeah, I know that's you don't not good. But I'm get hit by that car. Oh, that yeah. is true. Yeah, that's well, not a good be funny, idea. But, you know. but I was just, isn't wow. Meet Joe Black? He's like immortal and like he like is like hot all the time. He's anyway. death. He's okay. death. It's a long born. Okay, well, I didn't watch the movie. Like, I, I guess loved I loved it when I was like thirteen. Well, I guess during the time when that came out, I went to the Feel Good Majestic instead of the Feel Good <laughs> Meet Joe Black. Anyway, Darabont told Anthony, "I wanted to make a very direct, muscular kind of film." And uh, he builds upon that while talking to the New York Times that same year. Uh, Darabont uh, said, um, you could always tell that I was the kid who grew up watching Stanley Kubrick. Um, and he says, but for the miss, he had to toss all his old habits out the door and resort instead to a technique he had learned, which we had just discussed directing a couple of episodes of, of, of FX's The Shield. And he said, um, it took me completely out of my old comfort zone. I used to be like a classical composer playing with the symphony orchestra. And here I was playing jazz and you're right Ashley in saying it was it was like a documentary he says I wanted to make uh as I wanted to make a as realistic movie as I could if you look at a classic horror movie like The Exorcist part of what makes it so scary is that it feels so damn real if you add a layer of too much hysterical theatrical reality then audiences take it less seriously but if you play for it absolute reality 
But if you play for the absolute reality, then the dread and the horror, which is why we go to horror movies in the first place, is reinforced. God damn it, Darabont, come back, please. Um, Seriously. We need so, you. I know. So this is his last film. And, and in a way, it, for me, watching this, it does feel like a perfect button on his short filmography. I mean, he's had a lengthy career in Hollywood because, you know, he wrote one of his first gigs was writing the greatest Nightmare on Elm Street movie, in my opinion, uh, Dream Warriors. Uh, he wrote the the remake of The Blob, huge fan, which we did huge for a Patreon. So um, good. Very good. He did, uh, he wrote, uh, he wrote, I believe, with Mick Garris for The Fly 2. Um, I think the two of them shared. There was like a, he came on, did like the 85th draft, basically, of Mick Garris' <laughs> original draft. So, yeah. He's done all that, and he talks about this in the making of. He talks about how, like, you know, <laughs> I did all this. This is this is my like this is my salad days. This is my this is my foundation were monster movies, and then he obviously got into the prestige with Shawshank and Green Mile, and, and obviously the Majestic. And so, for me, looking back now, fifteen years, this does feel like the perfect coda. This feels like he took what he loved growing up, which is all the horror movies. Monsters and added a prestigious lens to it, which was this kind of documentary feel, and gave us a prestigious genre film. Like, is that hyperbole to call it this, or is it, or are we just saying that because of Darabont, Justin? I mean, I, I one of the things I was most nervous about going back because I, I before literally yesterday, the only time I ever saw this movie in color was that opening weekend fifteen years ago, mm. and like I said, I thought it was good, but it just wasn't something I wanted to revisit. When it became available on black and white, I think we might have watched it yours, Mike, years we ago. We did, yeah. And again, looking at it through that black and white lens is a totally different experience. And I think it's an even better experience. And then we saw it at the Music Box for the Stephen King Fest that we did four years ago at mm-hmm. that point, the first yeah. one. Yeah. And once again, that took it to another level of how much I thought it was great. <laughs> but watching yesterday in color, I was really nervous. I still think it's great. Yeah, like I still, I was kind of blown away by it. I was very hesitant to ever really watch it again in color. I still think black and white is the best way to do it, but I still think it works even now, having seen black and white multiple times. Yeah, in its original color format. So, do you think yeah, that if it had been made later, if it had been made when you know found footage movies had their big renaissance, that this could have been a found footage? horror movie hmm. a la Cloverfield mm. because Ooh, it really question. could this it almost feels like a found footage movie like an elevated found footage movie you don't get sick from the camera work the camera work yeah. is actually beautiful it's yeah. gorgeous mm-hmm. but it has that same intimate feeling and that same um dread and terror you you really feel like you're there you feel like you're a part of it you know, I, because there is a way you could do this with found footage. I mean, totally. every store has security cameras. Mm-hmm. So you could have it where it cuts to those and maybe you have someone. I mean, maybe if it's a few years later and you had the smartphones, yeah. you were able oh. to do where mm-hmm. people have the smartphones out and everything. Because you know that's what would be happening. Absolutely. We would um, it would be like, got to get this for the TikTok. Got to get this for the gram. <laughs> but the thing, here's what I'm, I wanted to say about the building on what Justin was saying is that like, I, I do well, even what you're saying is like, I think this is still an outlier Yeah, because I think it's just because it's Darabont. And I, I, I don't think Darabont, I think, you know, God, this is like the Darabont fan cast, but like, I, I just <laughs> think good. he's a cut above the rest. I, I, there's a quote here I have we gotta from, find something from bad King to say about him. 
Well, I got something. I another good thing earlier. Anyway. Yeah, you, like, that's true. you did walk out of the majestic, so I'm sure if he's and I like he's buried listening. alive, 1990. So yeah, I, I'm I'm still shocked in that. But uh, so I have a quote from King, and I think it describes the sentiment um, pretty well on why this feels like such an anomaly. So he was talking to MTV News in November of 2007, um, and everyone made the rounds this time, especially him because 2007 when King adaptations, you're talking 1408 and this is a pretty big year. So they ask him, what is it about Darabont's screenwriting and directing style that makes him a successful adapter of your work? And King goes, Frank never takes the easy quick way out. He always takes the work and says, I want to make a real story all the way through. I don't want to use any shortcuts. I don't want to use any tricks. He wants to do an honest day work for an honest day pay. In some ways, Frank reminds me of the late Sam Peckinpah because he tells stories from an adult sensibility in an entertainment industry that a lot of times goes for the quick emotional effect, whether it's the quick scare or the quick suspense or whatever. Frank instead tells stories the old-fashioned way, one building block at a time, and that always appealed to me about his storytelling style. The other thing is, you feel very comfortable with Frank. You feel that he's somebody who understands ordinary people. And that's what I write about. Ordinary people under stress. A lot of times, filmmakers don't really seem to understand ordinary people. I think there's a reason that David Lynch has never made a Stephen <laughs> King film or John Waters because they don't really get ordinary people. But Frank does. So... I, I do want to talk about that ordinary people under yeah. stress for our heroes and villains section. I think that's important to do, but I do want mm -hmm. to zone in on all the work of it all that King stresses. And because again, in the making of, there's another quote that King says, where he says, I trust Frank as a human being and as a creator. And he likens the two of their collaboration as chocolate and peanut butter. Mm -hmm. What do you think, what do you make of his work here? Because I think when he's, what, he, what, what King's talking about is, the way that he has a commitment to character and the the humanity of it all. Because I think like you're saying with the found footage angle, Ashley, I think some of that gets lost sometimes in found footage because it becomes so much about like the shock and awe of it all. Mm -hmm. and, and I love found footage, my favorite sub horror sub genre, but I think that's what makes Darabont such a, another step above it all because he is coming in with this old Hollywood techniques um, but what else, what, what do you, how do you see his work manifest through this film, especially, um, even when he's using this new style, because he still has very patient meditative shots, even amidst all the chaos, I would argue. I think you talk about the ordinary people and the extremes of, of what people are capable of. I think that he is a master at that. When you just look at, just take two movies, mm -hmm. Shawshank, which is all about hope. Right, it's all about hope. It's all about the best of us. It's all about what happens if we just keep going and persevere, and you know, just keep pushing. And this movie is the opposite. This movie is about total despair, total giving up, giving in. The worst of humanity in that supermarket is represented. So I think he does get the, what people what people are capable of, um, in optimistic ways and in nihilistic ways. Yeah. And well, I, yeah, I think he's the best. That's why I think he is still the best person to ever have adapted uh, King to King Agreed. The Mist Agreed. is also like just a really, really fantastic character study of how certain people react to certain things, mm -hmm. certain stresses. Like I think especially the very first time they go back into the uh, storage room, like the very first time they go back into the loading dock. And I think Ollie has the line where he says like they in the store, they were scared. They were terrified. They didn't know what to do. 
back here, there's a problem and they can solve it. So Mm. they now have a bit of power back because there's an issue that they know how to fix. So Mm. like, let them fix it, which is true. Like giving someone, that's always a thing where people say like, if, um, if there's a 911 situation, like if someone collapses, you shouldn't say someone call 911, you point to a specific person and you give them a directive. You point to a specific mm-hmm. person. You say, "You call nine one one. You hold the pressure on the wound. You do this because you have to give people that specific task because our brains like they go into overdrive and we can't figure out what to do." And yeah. I think it's just a cool character study because there's so many moments in this in this story and in this movie in which these ordinary people are put into an extraordinary situation, and it's interesting to see how they react to it because a lot of the time it's the opposite of what you would think or the opposite that you would see in other movies like some movies are way too efficient some Mm. movies are way too you know not necessarily that like oh they wouldn't do that or it wouldn't go that way but I think he has a way of like showing you what would actually happen Mm -hmm. and not in a cinematic way just in a like this is what would happen it would be utter fucking chaos and that's something that i appreciate like the way he like shows all of these characters and you know kind of the dangers of all this kind of reactionary rhetoric but it never feels like he's pushing like one side like really hard like okay miss carmody is just evil Mm -hmm. you just kind of see all these different views and these groups forming and these people struggling but it's never really heavy-handed and how they're presented it's not preachy yeah it's not preachy and I think that that really like helps sell the way that this is filmed because I like it feels like that's how it would be like you're like okay that lady is clearly like a little insane but you just kind of keep going and keep doing what you're doing and you find people that are aligning with you but it's it doesn't become a until the very end like a as giant of an event as i feel like some films and some directors would make it like it just kind of all plays out really organically it really does i I mean like i clocked it and it's 11 minutes when the tornado siren goes off and we're ready to go and by then i mean he's really efficiently set up a lot of the family and the antagonists and the supporting cast because you get these wonderful sweeping shots when they first enter the the grocery store Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you just get a little bit of just one little nugget here and there to understand that these are more than just background fodder, Mm -hmm. that these are characters that are going to be intrinsic to this story. And we're going to be spending a lot of time with them. And I think that's a quality that he, I mean, honestly, look back to dream, uh, you know, dream warriors. I mean, like Mm. that as a, that's a huge cast, right? Mm -hmm. And every one of the, one of the members in that cast have since been, you know, taken everyone's kind of taken their own personalities over the years, especially on Twitter and just kind of found their own within. And I think that's a credit to just Darabont's ability to carve out character. And like, that's what you're saying, Justin, is that he's such a good marriage with King because King's so good at doing that too. I mean, I think one of the hardest parts about King's stories to adapt is that King is so adept at being able to kind of build out a town within what, three or four pages. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to do that on film and I think maybe that's what's drawn Darabont to these stories is because you get to do that in a more contained environment. I mean, Shawshank Prison, Green Mile Prison, 
as King jokes to Darabont, this is kind of a prison in itself <laughs> at the shopping uh, shopping center. Yeah. But it allows him to have this microcosm. But go for it. Well, I think the other thing that he has, the big challenge for him in this movie is he's been so good over the years at capturing the inner monologue of King work. You know, the stuff that's on mm-hmm. the page that's from yeah. the narrator, not from the characters. But he's able to do that because movies like Shawshank and Green Mile had narrators. You know, yeah. they could actually yeah. convey what's going on, the passage of time, what's really happening in these people's heads. He didn't do that with The Mist. That's true. And it would have been a totally different movie if he had. So what you're left with is just is just David Drayton's looking around the supermarket when the sirens go off and seeing the MP come in, seeing the, the car pull up, seeing people huddled in the corner talking. Like, that's the way he conveys that something is... Mm-hmm. N- not that the shit's at the fan, but something is slightly off yeah. Yeah. that deserves consideration. And again, that is that is what sets this movie apart from his earlier works in a way that I would never watch The Mist. Okay, let me back up. If you watch <laughs> Shawshank, Green Mile, and The Majestic, you could walk out saying that's the same director. Mm-hmm. If, I really yeah. kept an eye on it this time. Nothing about this made me think that, oh, that's the guy that did The Green Mile at all. Other than the cast. Other than the cast. Other than the cast. Other than the cast. Yeah. Style and and the presentation and how everything unravels, totally different from those other movies. What he did in the first 11 minutes too, because I think this would be a completely different movie, a completely different story if every single person, like when I go to the grocery store, I am in a grocery store with strangers. I don't Mm -hmm. know the people Mm -hmm. in the grocery store, but the fact that he was able to show all the relationships like he has that quick little conversation with the babysitter like hey we want to uh you know we want a a date night on thursday can you watch him of course and then like he talks to ollie like whoa it's really crowded like you you establish that all of these people know each other they're not best friends Mm -hmm. they're not you know family but they know each other and they know a little bit they know mrs carmody is the town like the the one that when she walks in everyone goes oh yeah yeah you know yeah. like <laughs> they set that up so that like you know that they know each other you know that they kind of like have an idea of how maybe one of them would react to something but they don't know each other intimately and in the first 11 minutes of that movie i mean it's some of my favorite stuff in the movie is the first 11 minutes yeah yeah and it's funny because he actually had i was looking at some of the de- deleted scenes and he had a little bit more and there's only, there's one scene I, I watch all the deleted material and I'm thinking it was smart to kind of cut most of it out because this movie just the pacing is just fucking great because yeah. one of the other reasons why Jerobont works so well with King is that they're both very episodic in their storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, every one of his movies, even the majestic, mm-hmm. are all episodic. They all have these these moments. In this case, you really get the the fade in the fade out, mm-hmm. um, and I think it works to its advantage. Um, but there was one scene that I do think that was interesting was that there was a little bit more time with the wife in the beginning. Um, and I was like, ah, oh, this would have been really interesting to, to, to add in there just because you get a little bit more of the dynamic between um, uh, Norton and, and David and the family. But even then it's like, no, this movie's so economical and so efficient yeah. that y- 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 you don't need it. And it's, so it's, it's, it's kind of great in that respect. Um, I do want to, we could still talk about Darabont, but I I, kind of want to talk about his big contribution here. And we've already alluded to it, which is the ending. Now, Mm -hmm. to be fair, the ending isn't all of Darabont's idea. Um, It's right there in Stephen King's novella. David entertains this exact notion in his mind as a a loose possibility as he takes inventory on there being three bullets and uh, four people. 
And so what Darabont did was not only make this happen, but obviously give it the cut wrenching ending with the <laughs> troops arriving and uh, yada, yada, yada. An ending that um, King endorsed, similar to how Chuck Palahniuk with the Fight Club movie, he, that he wished that he had thought of that ending. And, um, and so basically, um, you know, Darabont talks about the ending. He says, if we're going to make a horror movie based on a Stephen King story, let's take Steve's most horrible, dour and darkest thought <laughs> and follow it out to its logical c- conclusion. Uh, so let's cut to the chase. Does this ending work for you? And Ashley, you had said that this was, <laughs> you're not a, you're more of a fan of the, the more optimistic ending of yeah. the, the novel, which I believe it, that, that, that it ends with them like at a hotel and they, they, they hear the radio about something about Boston and then they kind of go, go for it. I believe I it's Hartford, Connecticut. Hartford. Yeah. Um, okay. And I didn't find the ending of the the novel to be or the novella to be hopeful, actually, because I assumed by everything that they had seen that this is that the way the movie ends is the way it would have ended for them. Um, No part of me thought they're going to get to Hartford and everything's going to be just fine. So I don't mind. I actually really love the way he ends it with making that decision to use the gun on everyone in the car i think that's a it's it's one of the most (laughs) heart-wrenching movie scenes i've ever seen and without it i don't think the movie would be as strong as it was my biggest beef with the ending is simply that right after that the army shows up and like the mist clears and i'm like what Mm. Like maybe if there had been some time, maybe if he had gone through that, he had shot everyone in the car and he like passed out from being so like Mm. from being in such grief. And then like maybe the sound of the army hours later had woken him up maybe. And he had been if it hadn't been right then like that to me was like, oh, come on. And also, why is the mist cleared up? What did you do to clear this mist up? There's a there are a lot of. weird fan theories about this that actually tie into some of my uh, slight grievances uh, with, with some of the, the the quirks in here. We'll get to them in a okay. second, but I, I I just want to hear. So, Justin, you're, are you pro-ending? I'm pro-both endings, honestly. Yeah. I think the ending of the novella works for the novella, and I think that the ending of the movie works for the movie. Yeah, I don't think okay. they could have done the novella ending. And and, and the, the reason I don't think they could do the novella ending and I really thought I was going to go this entire episode without talking about Mike Flanagan. <laughs> but I guess we're going to talk about Mike Flanagan. <laughs> oh, no. Is that if he did go... Because I do think the novella ending, it's at least open-ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you could read it as hope. Again, hope. Yeah. There's something... Maybe yeah. there's something out there. Despite all the horrible things we've gone through, you know, something... Maybe there is somebody out there. Maybe there's going to be a hopeful resolution. If he had done that ending for for this movie... I think that we, it have been going into Flanagan, it's all confetti territory. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, you, when you think about sentimentality and Frank Darabont and Stephen King. And I think with this ending, it's, like, <laughs> it's so well, it's a gut punch. fuck you. If you think I'm not going to have Andy wading through the pipes and having the rain rain down upon him. No, 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 no. I'm going to give you the worst possible outcome for these people. And, and that's what he did. I feel like, I feel like if anything, it was more of a, I don't know if he was selfish, but I think he was thinking inwardly when he mm-hmm. did this ending too. I think he was like, okay, I'm going to absolutely subvert all of your expectations as yeah. to what Frank yeah. Darabont's going to do with a Stephen King movie. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, what about you? What, what were your thoughts on the ending here? 
I mean, I liked it. Yeah, it's it's funny. Instead of like hug me horror, he's like he like hug pushes horror, you down. Yeah. It pushes you down in the gravel, <laughs> yeah. like, and you try to get up, and he puts he his pushes you down he puts his foot on your neck, pummel, and you're like, me horror. Yeah. yeah, or choke yeah, me horror, drop me to the knees horror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's but it's I. I like it because I think it fits into what he was going for. He talks a lot about how this is, you know, influenced by like the the monster movies and the movies mm-hmm. of the 50 and just like how King was influenced, you know, by like the giant ant movies, like B movies that was kind of in his head as he was writing this and how this was kind of like the Twilight Zone ending um, because so many of those episodes just end on very like dark bleak just endings and so to me i felt like this was just like such a perfect tribute to what he was trying to do and very gutsy and i don't know maybe just the crazy like optimistic side of me there's like i think that there could be a hopeful reading in there the fact that like he basically gave up and then like somebody come you know and then there was help right there like maybe if you had just like held on a little longer like maybe it's not as bleak as it seems like there could be something over the horizon that you just can't see yet so i think that there is that reading there but it's because of thomas jane's performance i think it's really hard to see that on the first watch like i definitely did not get that the first couple times (laughs) i saw that (laughs) it is it is very twilight zone because i just think of the what's the one that we always watch that i shot an arrow in the in the sky and and it's i mean it's literally the same ending um yeah because of uh it even involves a gun in that one too Mm -hmm. um I, let's talk about what let, let's hear what King thought about this. Um, so he talked to Nightline in 2007, uh, slightly contentious interview as I've I've read in other interviews where he talks about stuff that were uh, cut out from from this. Uh, but uh, Justin, do you want to take on Tapper and and we'll go back and forth on this real quick? It's always been my dream to read oh. as, as Jake <laughs> Tapper. Jake Tapper. All right, here, here go, go for it. Go for it. I, I'm not going to do the voice of Jake Tapper. I'm just yeah, you don't do, have to. This you is going to be like, to. you know, Christopher Plummer doing Mike Wallace on, on The Insider. Okay, I'm going to do my okay, own okay, interpretation. Okay. okay. It's a very faithful adaptation of the novella The Mist. You know, through the ending of the novella is ambiguous. The ending of the movie, you don't walk out of that movie feeling good. Let's just put it that way so it's not to spoil it. So how did you feel about that ending being added? I thought it was terrific. It jarred me. It knew what was coming. The f- I knew what was coming the first time that I looked at the movie in a rough cut, and it still jarred me. It took a second viewing to get used to the idea that it was probably the only ending in terms of the world that had been created in that story. The way that it came about was that Frank had wanted to do The Mist for years and years and years, and he and I had talked again and again and about putting an actual ending on the movie because the ending of the novella is ambiguous. And the thing that really haunted me that was that my mother loved a good story and she had nothing but contempt for what she called Alfred Hitchcock endings. <laughs> and what she meant by an Alfred Hitchcock ending was one where you were more or less left to decide yourself what was going to happen. Oh, very moving. Although in the novella, <laughs> In the Mist, the protagonist mocks stories that have endings. That's right. And in real life, endings aren't always neat, whether they're happy endings or whether they're sad endings. This one's bleak. What I liked about the ending of this was that it's sort of the ending that's rarely allowed in pictures that are financed by Hollywood. Usually you have an ending in a movie that is kind of almost preordained. In other words, and I'm not trying to say what the ending is to this movie, and your characterization of it is bleak. Well, that's your characterization of it. Mine might be a little different. How would you characterize it? I'm not going to characterize it. That's not my job. (laughs) 
my job is to write stories, not to critique. I'll just say that the thing that I like about it is back when I was a kid, sometimes you'd see a newspaper ad that would say, you must not give away the final five minutes of this shocking movie. And usually it wasn't that shocking, but this one really is. And I like that because part of the job that the writer of horror has, the writer of comedy, is to be almost physically assaultive. And as a writer, one of the things that I've always been interested in doing is actually invading your comfort space because that's what we're supposed to do. Get under your skin and make you react. This does. Steven, thank you for your time. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of want to jump in a little bit on the political implications, a little, maybe not political implications, but just the thematical implications of some things that happen. And this is if you listen to our original missed episode from 2018, you probably heard me go off on this. And I think we had a pretty long debate about the thematical elements of this. And I don't want to get too much into it, but I do want to bring it up again because I, I keep thinking about it every time I watch it. So I think the ending works in tandem with a lot of the arcs and themes within, namely the film's relationship to faith. And I guess I've kind of always wrestled with it where it lands, you know, because to me, it seems like there's a lot of finger wagging dealt on our survivors, particularly David, given that Melissa McBride survives. Mm. And, you know, it's funny as I was learn lear- as I was, you know, as I learned doing the research for this, there was even supposed to be a scene that was going to include the survivors from the store on the, uh, one of the trucks. So mm. given that, um, do you think Darabont looks down upon David and shame in this, you know, perhaps for losing faith, uh, for maybe even turning to violence. I mean, there's a lot of discussion online since then over the last 15 years about the the, the theme, thematic impl- implications of the gun and how those who have the gun have only been dealt terror to them. They're, they're punished for it. Hmm. Rachel, you talked about losing hope. And if you had held a little bit longer, the, the, you know, the troops would have been there. They would have found them. What do you make of this? Like, do you think there's been shame? Dealt? Like, do you think there's shame or is it just mostly supposed to have that? It's all supposed to be working in tandem to the gut punch. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all in tandem. I don't feel like it's preaching at you saying like, oh, well, should have held on. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't get that vibe for it. I do think, I mean, it is kind of a little ambiguous with that. Like, what exactly he's trying to say with this. Um, So I, I don't think that he's looking down him in shame. Like, with this whole movie, I think what he's doing is just presenting all the different ways that people react in the humanity with this diversity of reactions and just how, like, oh, what does he say? He says in one of the interviews, like, he says something about basically just how we've always been awful, mm-hmm. we're awful now, and we're going to continue to be awful, and that's just humanity. But he, yeah. he but he also says it and, like, laughs a little, like, well, yeah. well we suck. <laughs> and so I kind of think that's you know his take on that here it's like he's not looking at him shameful but just kind of playing with those ideas that just like people are always gonna fuck it up somehow yeah yeah i i actually took a lot of notes on this because i had a different read this time Mm -hmm. there's a great exchange that i think is extremely pivotal to what happens throughout the rest of the movie specifically the end and it's when david is trying to convince brent not to go out Mm -hmm. and leave the supermarket right before he leaves and dies mm. the exchanges uh, brent says david there's nothing there's nothing out there in the mist and david says what if you're wrong and then brent says then i guess the joke would be on me after all and i think what this movie is talking about and or at least maybe i'm putting pinning it on this because of the last specifically three or f- eh, five or six years we've, we've been through is that 
for the three main characters in this instance, David, Brent, and Mrs. Carmody, their absolutes ruined Mm -hmm. or killed them all. Yeah. Brent's belief that there was absolutely nothing out there killed him and the people Mm -hmm. that believed in him. Mrs. Carmody's extremist beliefs that there was something out there, but said it was God's will and had people start following her, which led to, you know, calling for blood sacrifices led to a bullet to her head. And then David's belief that they were all totally fucked with no way out Mm -hmm. led to the murders of a son he loved and the people who supported him the most. But, but I'm not condemning any of these people because honestly, if you're there and mm-hmm. you're seeing all these events unfold based on the events, you could see believing in any of them at a certain point. 100%. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, I, we joke on this podcast about how I'm like, I don't think there's ghosts, right? So if you came out and told me that there's a ghost in the docking station, I would not believe you for a second. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're Norton in this for sure. I, I'm Norton. <laughs> but, yeah. but these events... You could see how Mrs. Carmody is making them sync up with revelations or certain passages from the Bible. Oh, yeah. And -hmm. if you're, and if that, this has been going on for millions of years, that will start to seep into your head under stressful circumstances. I don't know one person that was through this movie. Well, I shouldn't say one person. I'll just say me. I ultimately would have done the same thing that David did because we joke about this all the time. Whenever we watch zombie apocalypse movies or shows, speaking of Frank Darabont, Walking Dead, I always ask, why are these people so desperate to survive? I know. (laughs) But I think that it comes down to two things. Death is certain. Yeah, you're dead. That's that's it. That's a wrap. It's over. That's the end. But I think it's the what if. Mm -hmm. The what if, kind of like the ending, actually, like the the original ending of the Miss novella. It's the what if that keeps people going. And so I think for me... It's the the I hope, ironically enough, that would keep me going. But again, I think it's all about beware absolutes and beware absolutism. That's yeah. why I'm reading, watching it this time around. Well, and that directly, I think, talk about political implications. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But- I mean, it's and it's nothing, it's not clean cut either. It's just kind of like, just let's take a minute and, and sh- evaluate the situation. Yeah. So I should note, that a lot of the deleted stuff actually works against what I was saying too, because there was supposed to be originally a scene where the woman with kids at the home was supposed to be webbed and desiccated on their drive out. Oh shit! So, th- and the only reason why they didn't is because uh, Darabont loved uh, Melissa McBride's performance, which obviously he really loved her performance because she would she's probably the longstanding. Uh, origin or the long-standing og cast member of the walking dead at this point i mean she's yeah. there's so many here. right like just there's like 10 walking dead people yeah. in this movie <laughs> totally um i will say one thing that's interesting that made me think about this sammy brought it up when she was reading trivia when we were watching on friday so before dave and his group leaves mrs carmody requests that billy and manda be sacrificed mm-hmm. and so there's a popular theory out there online that the mist clears because David kills. Oh God! <laughs> no, no, no. Well, here's the thing. No, I guess the movie makes it pretty darn clear that Project Arrowhead is what it yeah. is. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. That's fun. It's like the Norm Macdonald yeah. read on Breaking Bad. It's fun. 
Yeah. But that's not what the end. It's, it's not, not a dream. You know, it's fun, but it's not. Come on. No. Because for the people in the store that don't get out, that don't see the military, that da 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 da, that didn't talk to the MP, like mm-hmm. for Mrs. Carmody and her, you know, cult that she mm-hmm. creates, it very well could be revelation. There's nothing to say that this isn't the actual, like, yeah. end of the world biblical times shit. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, the best case is what King says about this film because they asked him again about the ending. Um, I think this one was from the Vancouver Sun, um, and he's you know he said uh, you know is the mist a political story? Is the mist a story that has to do with the dangers of entrenched religion, fundamentalist religion? Is the mist a story about red and versus blue? I'm not going to answer any of those questions. You go see the movie, and I think that's kind of what makes this movie so goddamn good. Mm-hmm. Is that we're mm-hmm. sitting here gleaning all these different things. Although he was very, he did stress because I think there is a take that you could have. Is you're honestly stressing here? Actually, is there could be a religiosity? It's like oh, just the the does the fundamentalism, does the spiritualism went out in the end? And he says, and this is kind of great. And this kind of goes ex- exactly in what he goes. You know, basically all of his stories from beginning to end. Now, King told uh, Jake Tapper. This is again from the Nightline interview. I'm a religious man. Well, I'm a spiritual man. I certainly believe in God and I meditate on a regular basis and try to stay in touch with the God of my understanding. But I haven't been through the doors of the church. I don't think since my mother-in-law died. And I certainly don't have anything against churches per se. I'm not a vampire type when somebody shows me a cross or something like that. But a midnight mass. Yeah, midnight mass. But organized religion gives me the creeps. And I think you get same. that sense here. I mean, it's same here. I mean, yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't I think that's um a terror of Kings that's been rampant since the beginning with obviously Margaret White. So, um, you know, what also gives me the creeps though, the goddamn critters in this movie. <laughs> boy, oh boy. So let's talk about those, uh, and how they came to fruition. Ashley, did you, did, first yeah, time. you know, it's not, it's not too bad. Not too bad. It helps that I write these out, you know, days ahead of time. Um, the creeps and critters. Yeah. So Ashley, did you, did you get some notes from like, you know, how these came to bat? Yeah. Sweet, sweet. Go yeah, for it. Yeah, and I, I do think one of the main themes of the story and the film is that the monsters outside are almost secondary to the horrors of what happens to the people under extreme stress, the quote-unquote monsters inside. You know, the scariest part of the story is Mrs. Carmody and her effect on the people in the store. And I reread the novella when I was researching this episode, and Stephen only spends seven or eight very, very short paragraphs describing the creatures, and he's describing them from the POV of the characters who own only catch a glimpse like Mm. at one point he describes something by saying i never got a good look at it and for that i think i'm grateful it appeared to be red the angry color of a cooked lobster it had claws it was making a low grunting sound and that's it Mm. and it's incredibly effective as a reader but obviously when it came to the film the creatures needed to be fully fleshed out and designed because even if the characters didn't get a good look at it we as the observers would and naturally our good friend greg nicotero oh yeah designed some legitimately terrifying creatures so an adaptation of the novella was first considered in the 80s by frank darabont which we talked about i had no idea and there was a full script produced in 1988 and greg nicotero as well as everett burrell who was the head of optic nerve studios were contracted for the project in the 80s Obviously, it didn't happen. Frank got a little preoccupied with uh, another adaptation, The Green Mile. So 
But a full 18 years later, God smiled down on us for a fleeting moment as the same team (laughs) got to be brought back together again for the project. And it's dope because you can actually go online and find their original creature designs from 1988 and then compare them to the ones they created 18 years later. And it's so fun to see how they grew as artists, but also how the vision for the movie evolved into what it was. Mm. And something that was really important to them when it came to designing the creatures was one, that they didn't look like anything else that had ever been created for film. So cool. Because of two, they wanted to ensure that these things looked as though they came from a totally different world from ours with a totally different ecosystem entirely. And this was obviously a big departure from the, you know, stories that Darabont had chosen to adapt prior to this. He usually took on more of the Stephen King dramas, and this was the first time he had the opportunity to design his own creatures. And it was obviously he was an integral part of the design team, too. And another thing, and I think this is the biggest thing for me when it came to the design of the creatures was the movement and behavior of those creatures. Mm. Because it was important, I think, to stress that these were not monsters out to attack humans. They were animals that got dumped into a completely new dimension and essentially were learning how to survive in our world. So they weren't actively seeking out and attempting to murder people. So when, like, the first time we see something, the tentacle comes in under the door in the loading dock, it was exploring. Mm -hmm. It wasn't aggressive. It wasn't like, I'm going to eat you. It was like, what is this? What is that smelling around? And it wasn't until it actually got a hold of the bag boy and, like, got the blood and, like, tasted him, essentially, that was like, "Mm, yum, yum, yum. Mm -hmm. So... Greg once said, these aren't monsters, and that was important to us. There are animals that have been misplaced into this new ecosystem. If they happen to eat someone, it's almost like mistaken identity, like a shark attack, which I thought was really great. And I think yeah. you see that throughout the whole film. You do, the yeah. Curiosity. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, because really the, the only behavior. time... The, the only antagonism really is when they kind of infiltrate on their domain in the pharmacy, right? Yeah. I mean, because everything else is happenstance for the most part. Well, even, you know, when all the little bug things are landing on the window and they're not trying to get in, they're bugs attracted to light. Yeah. So they're just landing. And the only reason something gets in is because their natural predator is swooping down and eating them and happens to crash into the, uh, the store. What is kind of a bummer about the creature design in this film is that almost... Most of the scenes were filmed or were were planned to be filmed with practical effects, and probably 90% of those practical effects were uh, inevitably replaced with CGI for the final project. (laughs) Either way, works. (laughs) For the final thing. Um, But it was cool because all the CGI was rendered exactly as these practical puppets and the actors were able to react to actual creatures on set. And the puppets were super invaluable references when it came to like lighting and yeah. interacting. And, but we don't get to see much of them at all on screen. That's so crazy. I, I, I cause, know. Cause you watch the making of and you see them and like Darabont's like lighting up when he's going yeah. through, especially with the tentacles. Like it's so cool. Yes. And, um, I mean, at one point, I think they have footage of like Nicotero, um, like kind of 
uh, there's like almost like a steering wheel type thing he has, and you can see like it's like messing with like the integral, uh, like the talons. little pincher thing. Yeah, the pinchers yeah. and stuff. Uh, that, God, I didn't realize that they actually replaced most of the the practical aspects of it. I mean, I know we probably see a lot of CGI. Of it, that's yeah. so crazy to me, and I, I, I imagine that's probably the studio basically being like, we wanted to look a little bit more animated. On time, right? Because like they said, they Mm -hmm. had like the whole thing was thirty-seven days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel like the thing with so many practical effects. I mean, we see this all the time. It just comes down to resetting and making it work. And I mean, you think about Chucky and like how much time they spent like making sure like his movements were right or like it would break. And so that's something that it's like okay, your shoot's only thirty-seven days. That can would just do it and do it in post. You know, fix it in post. Yeah. Uh, I I do think that you know because I, I remember early on when this when this first came out everyone was like man the movie's great the effects are like meh and I think that the black and white does a really good job in in selling the CGI oh, absolutely I agree you know? it does look better yeah um, it looks but, so and but, I don't know if it's the glossiness or what it is about the CGI because the actual movements of the character of, of the creatures is fantastic yeah so yeah. Uh, I'm not sure where it, where I the think CGI it's just the, the the matching of the color, yeah, and the shadows of the CGI and the and the people, for instance. But, but I will say it's I've kind of come around on the effects. Mm-hmm. Aside from mm-hmm. when the tentacles pulling away the Shermanator from mm-hmm. American Pie, oh, Pie Two, aka yeah. Norm. I'm sorry, Norm. <laughs> uh, aside from that, I actually thought the the, the CGI looks pretty good. The yeah. rest of the movie, and I think honestly, it's because there's been articles in Variety and Hollywood Reporter is that CGI now is actually worse mm-hmm. than Somehow. it was 15 years ago. Yeah. And it's not because of ability. It's kind of what you were talking about, Rachel. It's because of time. Mm-hmm. But whereas time used to affect the use of practical effects, somehow studios have gotten so greedy and so insistent upon their calendars that it's now affecting CGI. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there was, a, in a way, it wasn't just looking back like, oh, that's so folksy and how look how old-fashioned it looks i think that that scene the supermarket when they're all the bugs are breaking through phenomenal looks better than anything i've seen in a marvel or disney or star wars show in the last few years well Well, it's real fire that yeah yeah, that's what i was gonna say and like how the things in the actual store like i'm sure if you see the behind the scenes on that scene how things they're making it physical objects react and then building the CGI around that. So you're yeah. kind of getting that juxtaposition where you're seeing real things fall off the shelf, real fire mixed with fake fire. Yeah. And Thomas Jane also has a physical object to interact with. So all of that really helps, I don't know, make it a little less seamless yeah. to make yeah. make the, you know, the juxtaposition of it feel a little less harsh in a lot of ways. And even in the loading dock, how certain things that the dog food bag or a mm. pallet was falling over, like all that was real, which really kind of helps, I think, make that transition a little less uncomfortable. Because and you know it, how they would do it now is they would just have Thomas Jane and about five other people and a Wait, giant right. green screen, green screen. Studio, yeah. And everything would be CGI'd around them. Well, and that's you know? one thing that was important to them too is that the outside of the store was not a green screen. They mm-hmm. actually pumped in mist. They actually pumped it. It was glycol mist that was pumped in, so, so that cool. when you saw characters say like walk out into the mist, like that's what the actors got to see. They got to see them walking out and disappearing into the mist. Yeah, like it was real. So that was cool. 
And I think if we wanted to break down any of the individual creatures to discuss the design, we have to choose the spiders. Spiders are so fucking Like their eyes. Their human skull faces are (laughs) so gross. They didn't have to go that hard, but they did. did. And we love them for it. (laughs) (laughs) Because Stephen King's description in the novella, he described the spiders by saying they were the size of a dog, black with yellow piping. He says almost like racing stripes. The eyes were reddish purple, and it had 12 to 14 mini jointed legs. That's it. That's all we get. And obviously, that's not at all what we got in the movie. We got these, like, bone spiders. Um, And Frank Darabont actually came up with the idea for them to have an almost human grinning face. It's so genius. Yeah, It's really genius. And actually, that was something I, I, I didn't read anything about this, but I feel like it had to have been... The spider design had to have inspired a lot of the other designs because these creatures have these mammal-like features Mm -hmm. on creatures that seemed more like insects, reptiles, or cephalopods. Like, it was a cool way to demonstrate they were from a completely different world than ours. Like, imagine a squid with bones. Imagine a squid with a mandible. Like, Mm -hmm. they all had these, like, almost mammal-like facial structures, and yet they were you know spiders or or the, the the bugs were like scorpions and locusts put together yeah. like it was just really cool Mos- yeah. Yeah. yeah like it was just so Weird cool fusions. how they did it well and that's so true to king's design for all the midworld creatures which let's be real that's what they are they mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, they they're absolutely what you know we find in the wastelands and later on in from a book eight um, and not to jump ahead to King's Dominion, but the way they dissipate in here is very mm-hmm. similar to, to yeah. Buick 8. I was smelling peppermint when I was uh, in, in, in uh, <laughs> uh, God, I disgusting. I had a peppermint mocha watching The Mist yesterday. Oh, did you really? I, I really <laughs> wow. swear to God I did. Did you have any <laughs> sauerkraut with it to kind of match? Well, the, during the, that the... scene of it dissipating, I just I leaned back like a <laughs> like a nasal drip. I just dumped the coffee down my, oh, nice. my nostrils. So <laughs> nice, really nice. And you hit home. Eat, while eating a Reuben. Um, the only (laughs) last thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to creature design is that, um, it almost didn't make it in the movie. And I think it would have been so sad. The behemoth at the end. Oh God. I was almost not. I love it. Frank Darabont didn't have it in the movie. He was like, I just don't think it's that important to the story, but I think that seeing something of that magnitude is absolutely something that would inspire what happens in that car oh 100 percent thousand percent agree yeah like i mean that's that i mean watching it the first time with caffrey that is ultimately the moment where i'm like it's over you're done yeah what are you gonna we're do we're done what, yeah. what are you gonna do this thing's the beyond our control yeah. yeah it's fucking well, over even, even now again, oh go for it sorry mike, mike you know why that scene works so well too though is because it's so enclosed by the mist mm-hmm. yeah and the reason that that supermarket assault works so well is because it's all lit by, you know, lamps and, and yeah. fire. Yeah. It's because with CGI, the, as long as you can make it out, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. If it's the more clearly defined it is, it doesn't look as good. Yeah. That's but true. that's why that monster is kind of just roaming through the mist. Yeah. Looks and so it's good. One of the most iconic shots of the film. Great. Totally. There's even that like limited edition poster, I think, that has uh, the truck and the. The, the huge thing crawling. I mean, that, at that point, 
I mean, I know we've had some Lovecraftian stories that have made it to the screen, but like that for me is like, oh yeah, that's like the most Lovecraftian image I've seen well, that has ta- taken me back. It on was screen. inspired by specifically a Lovecraftian yeah. monster. It seems a, like that it. was like an elephant that had tentacles on its back. Yeah, and this is simple. I, I think Ashley, you read the most recently, right? So, isn't some, doesn't some, something similar happen? Oh yeah, in the, the novella too. Right? Don't they mm-hmm. see a giant? They see this giant thing walk across, yeah, and like sorry. it, it, it shakes the the car yeah. around mm-hmm. because that's how which happens in the film, which is great, and it also literally like its footsteps make it's just foot. they have to drive around like these huge holes that it's mm. created in the world. I mean, it, game over, man. Yeah. Game yeah, over. It's over. Like <laughs> that thing is. This is what I'm saying. Absolutely I, not. I I understand why they would have done what they did. I, I oh, get it. Totally. I, I totally get and it. I, you know. There's a very specific moment where um what's his little boy's name? Big Big Billy. Bill. Billy where Billy, Billy <laughs> is laying on the ground and they're just like looking at each other and it's after I think the pharmacy, after all that's happened, and he says, You have to promise me the monsters won't ever get me. Yes, yeah. And, and that's says, also huge. I, I promise. Huge. And he says, Seriously, promise me. And he says, yeah. I will never let them get you. So when they run out of gas and they can hear them closing in and they just mm-hmm. saw that thing, mm-hmm. of course that's what he's gonna do. Yeah. yeah. He, you know, this was very carefully designed on page, which, wow, what a shocker. It's Darabont. But because there is a cut scene with, you know, the woman who killed herself with the pills, yeah. which, mm-hmm. by the way, yeah. it would have been me in my day four um, oh, yeah. but, sure. um, yes. or day one or whatever. Um, there's a scene with her where she's like, oh, can I just be with Billy? Like, if I have Billy, I could get through this. But I, I have mortal terror right now. Yeah. And and you could see like Jane's like, and that's why like they keep handing him to her and then it's ultimately like everyone has their vices in this to keep them going um and i think that the way that they painted out there i mean that's like one scene i actually think would have been interesting to have on there but i think it actually makes it a little too dour at this point Mm -hmm. i think but here's the thing about that if you have that scene then you're waiting for billy to be taken away from her for a time and then you go back to step which reminds me of something talk about less is more yeah well well, i didn't really pick up on this time uh, i picked up on this time i really didn't think about before is there's no David does not say goodbye to his wife on screen. No, no. not at all. They're just they drive off. Well, and the so deleted no scene set up there where it's like you don't see her in the rear view waving to them, nope. knowing in the back of her heads as horror viewers, she's dead. Mm-hmm. You you almost just figure like, oh well, she'll she'll figure into the story later, or he'll go back to her. You don't even get the goodbye, which I, I can't really remember that ever happening in anything. There's yeah. a what if. So there's a there's an added punch that they have in deleted scene that I, I I had never seen these deleted scenes until today this morning. And there's a scene that one I mentioned before where it shows them with the you know, with Norton before they take off. Mm-hmm. And she gives him the the grocery list and they Norton's looking out at the the lake and he sees the mist coming in and he's like, Well, God, the mist was rolling out of the mountains. Now it's halfway through the lake. And David turns to his wife. He's like, "Why don't you go with us?" You know, to the thing. And she's like, "Ah, oh, no, happy I got it's not there." I know. Me too. That's the thing. It's like that uh, happens in the novel. They're the novella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just better just get it going. Like everything is totally normal. Yeah, not it just feels people, more real. Like, yeah, that's what you would do. Yeah. yeah. All right. See you. See you in a few. So I have a yeah. question on limiting information here that's tied to the creatures. Just real quick, do we get too much explanation from the Arrowhead Project? Because I always forget mm-hmm. that we actually get. Um, the you MP. Know, the, yeah, the MP kind of goes off on to like the what ifs of like, oh, well, you know, and, and basically tells the entire room like, you know, they're testing with, you know, uh, you know, multiple realities and whatnot. Like, do you think that that was too much? you think that was uh, enough? I mean, 
originally Jeroboam even wrote an opening scene, which is going to have like the whole thunderstorm causes this malfunction at the Arrowhead mm. project. And I'm yeah. glad that, and Andre Brower was the one who was like, I don't think we need that. Mm. Did we need to cut more? Or do you think we got just enough in this movie of where they came from? It's interesting. Cause like coming at it from like all of us being King fans. Yeah. Like I immediately like knew what it was, right? Yeah. Like, mm. oh, this is, you know, a dark tower, midworld thing. It's like a thinning, I'd be yeah. yeah, I'd be curious if somebody wasn't as familiar. Like, I think that's why it's there for people who aren't necessarily King fans to have some sort of explanation. Because if you didn't, it would be too too vague, I think. But I don't know. It doesn't bother me, honestly. I yeah. it's it's like short enough that because so he was not in the novella that's like the only character that wasn't in the novella was the young soldier that ends up getting you know blood sacrifice stabbed yeah stabbed and thrown out which i actually love that scene Mm -hmm. i think that that scene's great and i don't think that we would have had it if he hadn't given that little monologue because that's what that what causes you know marcia gay harden um uh mrs carmody to say it was you it was it was your fault fault. yeah and he's like it's not me it wasn't my fault and it's like nah you you were messing with shit you shouldn't have been messing with i think so i think we needed it i do i do too i think it first of all leads to i mean the last half hour it's just harrowing (laughs) after watching it again when you really sit down and watch that last 30 minutes from the moment that william sadler's character pulls Turns. him out and like starts accusing him of stuff through the end of the movie is as good as any other King adaptation, I think. Um, but the other thing is, I think that Darabont wants us to understand at this point, the, the ambiguity of, Oh, maybe Miss Carmody is right. Mm. Stop thinking about that. We're moving mm. on from that ambiguity. Huh. And so I actually, that's true. I don't mind the explanation there. And because it also comes at a cost, it comes at the cost of, of his two friends killing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like he's like, what were we thinking, guys? And then, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. And then it's more of a another hammer to the head that this movie keeps delivering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just enough. I think that yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that we don't have that opening scene, though. Good job, well, Andre Brower. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Andre. Yeah. Especially like, that he doesn't go into detail because he doesn't actually know. He's like, I don't know. They said that they, you know what I mean? Like, this is what they were saying before they killed themselves. Like, I, we've heard rumors, you know what I mean? So he mm-hmm. doesn't actually be like, all right, so here's what happened on yeah. July yeah. 3rd. Yeah, <laughs> oh, my gosh. If there was yeah. like a flashback scene there. Oh, like, man. <laughs> Like, I overheard two scientists talking about this mirror. It would just oh. kill the documentary feel of this oh. for sure. It really would. Um, okay. Sure, Max didn't want it, you know. Any other thoughts on the on the Arrowhead creatures? Loved them. Yeah. Yeah. You look yeah. great. A plus. You look what, great. Which one scared you the most, Justin? I think the that I love that misdirect of those little, not little, but by comparison. When those bugs are flying against the window, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, Sadler, I think Sadler looks up and goes, "Oh my god!" And then that even Giant, bigger one comes bird. down and starts eating them, and like, oh, that's the real thing. problem. Yeah. That weird vulture creature, yeah, I think looks pretty great. And obviously, Ra- the the creature at the the creature at the, the end, the, the giant creature. Yeah, Rachel, what's the spiders? Mm. Spiders, spiders. The different sizes. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that they're like, you know, really tiny and then you see like the giant one at the door. Like, nope, that's some arachnophobia stuff that I give me, just give me that four into. bullet gun. <laughs> there, there's, yeah. there's no way I walk out of that pharmacy not thinking there's a spider in my pants or like Oh god, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Well I'm, remember walking out of the pharmacy, that is what breaks uh Sadler. Yeah. I mean yep. breaks him. He is mm-hmm. a different person 
yeah. after he comes out of that pharmacy. He yeah. can't even breathe. And yeah. the spiders, yeah, the spiders are just also lest we forget, uh, acid. Yes. Oh yeah. Web oh, webs. God. Acid that webbing. Too. So <laughs> that when it pulls off his leg. So that's yeah. what I was gonna ask. Like that does that does like slice his leg off, right? Yes. It, it yeah, it like, it like yeah, it like pulls like the outer edge. Like I yeah, thought it was just like his outer skin of his. Essentially. Yes, oh god. Yeah. Fucking awful creatures. Just horrible. Oof. Yeah. How so dare spiders they? are for you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I I think I it's. I think I'm on Team Spider. <laughs> spiders get me. That bird is fucking haunting because it mm. it's the closest thing I've ever seen to like a real midworld midworld monster. But yeah, that giant thing at the end is like, it's also creepy because the giant thing comes with all the things we're talking about. Because you could look if you look closely, they all have like the flying weird things next to it, and mm -hmm. they you could tell like there's probably like the spiders that are on it too. So it's just an well, and the death. fact <laughs> that it it is it's just walking. Yeah, yeah, it's just hanging out, you know. It's not doing, it's not, it doesn't notice the car and like go yeah. after the car. It's just cruising through. It's like, this is their world now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Full stop. Uh, Real quick, just because we've talked about the black and white cut. You know, this wasn't, this was the intended, ver you know, vision of Darabont. He wasn't able to do it until after the fact. Um, He talks about that in the intro for the, in the Blu-ray and the DVD about how they went back and uh, re-edited it in black and white, and he was influenced by the Coen Brothers, man who wasn't there, um, mm. and how they were able to kind of um, remove it. And he also loved it because the black and white made it look like what he originally intended to be, which was like Night of the Living Dead. But he also appreciates the grainy color version because he says it reminds him of like the 70s thrillers, which I'm imagining he's thinking of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and whatnot, but mm. um, the 78 version. Where do you stand, real quick? Is it black and white forever? You can never go back, Justin? Black and white. Well, it's like I said, I uh, because I didn't realize I could go on my phone app and rent the version, the black and white version <laughs> of Voodoo and then watch it on my Apple TV. I couldn't do it on Apple TV. Look, it's, it's ridiculous how they got this stuff up. So actually, like I said, I'm happy that I went back and watched the, the more the easily accessible color version because it did prove to me that this isn't just oh, the black and white was a great gimmick, therefore I like it more. I still think it's just a, it's a great movie either way. Regardless. Having said that, having said that, if I had the DVD or the mm -hmm. Blu-ray or the Laserdisc, I would, <laughs> I would always go to black and white, especially if nobody's seen it before. I would go yeah. to black and white. Because okay. I, I was thinking, about, even watching the very end when, he's, when they're driving through the town and that music's playing, and just the black and white, I'll never forget, like the watching the theater, especially just the mist and the, the headlights. Yeah, the headlights. And when he gets home, it almost looks like a haunted house because mm -hmm. it has actually become a haunted house. Yeah. And it's even harder to make out his wife up there. Yeah. It's even more kind of. Is that her? Hypnotic, you know? Yeah. yeah. Something about that. And, and we mentioned the CGI. It just looks yeah. better in black and yeah. white. So. Rachel, you posed this question yesterday yeah. on yeah. Twitter, and we got a lot of responses. Holy shit, did we get a lot of responses. And they seemed to be, I think they were mostly black and white, right? Mostly like, black and white. Yeah. yeah, I was, I'm just always interested what, you know, the different yeah. stances people take. But because when, like, watching it, I found myself, I was, I watched the black and white version this time. I've seen the color version the most, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I thought it was just so interesting how watching the black and white version, well, the grain 
and how to me it really helped kind of heighten the camera movements mm. which i thought really it was like oh okay i see more of darabont's vision of kind of what he was his tribute you know that he was going to just like people always talk about like oh x ty west it's a love letter to 70s cinema it's like okay well this is like his love letter to 50s and 60s cinema right yeah. and i felt like i got that more with the black and white obviously you know because of the color palette but also the style of it I also thought that it accentuated like the craft of the performances, yeah. like even the actors, like their faces. I was kind of more aware the sweat on their face. I felt more engaged with it in that way. For some reason, the color, I'm not sure why. I'm not exactly sure why, like the, you know, the subconscious effect that some of that has on it. But I do think it's more than just the CGI that makes the color difference, mm -hmm. maybe a better film in a different way. I don't think the color is bad. I really don't. It's just kind of two different viewing experiences, like what you're going for. But yeah. it does work well for me as black and white. But yeah, I think a lot of people said black and white, mostly because of the CGI. But I think it's more than that. Yeah, I agree. Ashley, you're going yeah, black and white? Yeah, I, I watched it in black and white for the first time two nights ago. Oh, wow. I had never seen the black and white version. And uh, I mean, my husband even looked at me and he said, we will never watch this movie in color again. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah. It it was an emotional experience, and I don't know if it's just because of that nostalgia of of like black and white movies, but also one thing that I noticed the blood is such a stark contrast in black and white, mm. and for whatever reason, I don't know if I noticed how much blood was in it before, and it's not like overly gory, but even just you know the moment that stood out to me was after the young soldier was killed and he puts his bloody hand up on the glass mm -hmm. as like yeah. one last like please let me back in yeah and then he too. gets pulled away and his bloody handprint is just left there and the way that it's shot and the the I mean that it is black against yeah. the white yeah. mist and it is just it's gorgeous it's i would say to me the color version of this movie is a movie and the black and white version of this movie is a film yeah no. that's a good answer. i like that i like, I like that. that where it like just that a feels let like me a... put that on my twitter handle i was thinking about the mist the other day and, uh, i definitely <laughs> said <laughs> i also like now as soon as i finished it i was like what other movies can we watch on black and white like what we other could movies logan. could we <laughs> yeah oh logan, logan would be fantastic yeah. logan Mad max, max. Mad Max. Very, yeah. yeah, totally. But whereas I think Logan... Parasite. Oh, do they do? Black oh, oh, they wow. did do Parasite. Oh, wow. That's right. But oh, I think that even with Logan... I feel honestly, like the colors Logan in Parasite Max, are so I love so the black and white though. experience, but... That's what somebody prefer, pointed out. I would still prefer the color versions of Logan and Mad Max. Mm -hmm. I like the black so and white too. versions, but... I lean with the, the color version. Well, like Fury Road is such a colorful palette. Like you can't... I know, it's, it's so to, beautiful. I would... I would feel sad i think if i yeah <laughs> it, it works it's like... interesting it's fun it's like like i said it's an ex it's a cool experiment yeah but i'm, I'm always gonna go with the poppy yeah i think that movie. that's a good way to think about this we're like oh black and white this movie in black and white that's a cool experiment i'd like to you know check it out but for this like i, I don't think i'll ever watch it in color again and i yeah. i saw it you know seven or eight times in color and loved it and now i'm just like no that was that's the way to watch it it's just like gorgeous yeah, it yeah, feels well, like a... <laughs> color or not, the one component of this movie that remains unscathed is the music, uh, <laughs> which is or the, or the lack thereof almost. Yeah, oh, yeah. say. Um, so the composer, Mark Isham. Um, look, we have Rachel on on this episode. 
Yeah, we, we all know that there's no one knows music better than Rachel here. So I'm, the, the floor is yours. But here's what I have to say about Mark Isham. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's Isham. Um, so let's Isham. start oh, there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Exhibit A. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, at least I think it is. I'm pretty sure it is. But anyways, yeah, New York City born composer. He's a trumpeter and a keyboardist. I think he's best known as kind of like a jazz and electronic um, guy. It's interesting to me because he was not ever trying to be a film composer. He was before he started doing films, he won Grammys for his solo like jazz albums, worked with, you know, Susie Sue, Joni Mitchell, Pharaoh Sanders, mm. Herbie Hancock, incredibly accomplished trumpeter. Um, and then Carol Ballard needed a, you know, somebody to score her film called Never Cry Wolf or their film called Never Cried Wolf. And um he was like, all right, yeah, I'll give it a swing. Did it. And uh, since then, he's done 400 plus movies and television wow. shows. So many. Yeah. So he, yeah. So, I mean, and an incredibly diverse <laughs> range of work. So he did like The Hitcher, Fire in the Sky, the Time Hitcher. Cop, Nell, Blade, Varsity Blues, Save the Last Dance, Black Dahlia, The Mechanic, um, not the Bronson ones, sadly. Um, Judas and the Black Messiah, Point Break, and all 147 episodes of the Once Upon a Time series. Oh my so god! Just in insane, and like a very diverse amount of films and kinds of films, genres, qualities, whatever. Um, so he connected with Darabont. He did the music for the Majestic. Mm. So that's how that's how they synced up and which is wild because it sounds so much like thomas newman to the point where i was like oh cool fourth a third collaboration and then i was like nope not <laughs> not a collaboration at all that's interesting well, yeah. yeah so that's kind of i think something that is so interesting about him is he is just he's able to really fit the project and there's not necessarily i think an isham sound and I think that's kind of where he comes into play for, you know, for better or worse. He's able to kind of tailor what he's doing. Um, but yeah, jazz, I think, and electronic stuff is where he's really stronger. Um, so for this, not a lot of music in the film, hmm. but I also think that was always part of the plan. I keep bringing up his Darabont's influences, right? You look back at, and I, I, I just kept thinking about the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm -hmm. and, and just the way that scoring was done kind of at that time because you couldn't score a picture like you can now so it's almost like okay this scene will be scored this scene will be scored this scene will be scored and you couldn't you didn't have the luxury of scoring as much i think just because it was more difficult mm. um and that's kind of how they approach this i think which i think is really cool yeah and it also like because there's not a lot of music it's no you know no mystery no secret that darabont you know, knew what he want. And he hired a lot of people that maybe he didn't need to, considering he was on a big budget. You know, I hope at some point we can talk about, uh, what's his name? Drew Struzan, the artwork. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's something he didn't have to do, but yeah. Darabont did because <laughs> mm -hmm. like he felt passionately about that. And I think hiring um, Aisham for the small musical role is another thing that just really speaks to how prolific and, um, or how like, Darabont values prolific, respected people and pays them maybe more than he should have or, you know, could afford on a budget, but felt that it was valuable. And um, so I think that's where it comes into play. It's 
it's cool how he does it with the mist because it's very like atmospheric and ethereal plays into that and then you get these creatures and the way that it's very like percussive and reverberous and just kind of emphasizes the primal survival situation that all of these people are in like okay so you think about the the loading basin mm-hmm. and you've got that door if you listen to the music there's a lot of those kind of elements percussive elements that really feel like almost like there's a metallic door sound and some scraping sounds and then in bugs where the bugs are hitting the windows and coming in breaking in and all that there's all these like light buzzing sounds and lots of dynamic swells which kind of feel like bugs are like around you everything is in service I guess is what I'm saying to what's happening on the screen it's more tied to that than characters you know like we think a lot of films now are like thematic. You think Jerry Goldsmith or John Williams, very thematic with characters. And yeah. this isn't like that. This is very much like what's happening in this moment. I'm going to score around that, which is really cool. Yeah. And then just because there's not a lot of orchestral sounds, it's kind of playing up that these are from some other world. Humanity is going down. There's not a lot of horns and stuff or woodwinds or strings and that kind of stuff. But there are vocals. And for the vocals, I think everybody thinks of the last song in this movie. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Uh, Which is by Dead Can Dance. And that's called, uh, let's see. I was looking for the Uh, name of it. I couldn't find the name of it. The Host of Seraphim. Uplifting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that came off of their, it was a pre-existing song, came off of their album. They're an Australian band. And came off of their album from... Uh, 1988 called the serpent's egg oh and and dead can dance is really like a spiritual band you know kind of new agey they have a lot of influences from world music and kind of traditional styles blended into their own kind of thing and so this song it's funny okay so it was used in the mist it was used um in 1992 on baraka in a really emotional devastating scene wait what's baraka yeah it's like a documentary there's like no dialogue though it's just like this song is like put up against like people living next to a dump like in india it's like it's devastating it's really sad um it's also used apparently in Lords of Chaos, the new movie, and Legends of the Guardians, the Owls of oh. the Pool. <laughs> I don't know. That is a Halloweenies uh, bit. Yeah, because yeah. 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 uh, Zack Snyder, it's our favorite Zack Snyder film, I think. Oh, God. So <laughs> yeah. it's in there. And then, but maybe most notably, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines trailer. <laughs> Interesting. It's in the trailer? I don't remember yeah. that. So wow. I think what all of these things have in common where it's used is that it just has this like really intense spiritual feel it's just like this end of the world humanity kind of it's a just an incredible song and lisa gerard who's the this the vocals part of this she also contributed a few vocal elements to some of the other tracks so you kind of get hints of it earlier so Aishim is really like building towards this so it doesn't come as quite a shock when you get this like yeah. giant vocal piece the organ's so key in mm. coming into that um and it yeah that, that's 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 so dead on with like the building it up because if it did if it was just punched in immediately it would it would kind of feel a little too almost like parody in a way yeah. or a little too yeah. maudlin 
Yeah. It's really, it comes on, it's like this reckoning that's yeah. like building and all of these people are like catching hints of it. Like, oh shit, maybe we're not going to get out of this. And like, kind of like that, that weight is building. And then it finally just gets released at the end and it's just devastating. Cause it's... Well, didn't Lisa Gerard also do the vocals for Gladiator? Oh, wow. Yeah. Then that, that makes sense. That's why I was saying that, Gladiator yeah, music. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of that. Yeah. Earlier. Yeah. yeah she she's also scored um i mean like done some scoring on her own which is like is really interesting um i thought this was <laughs> she i have a quote from her she says music is the guest of the banquet film music short changes you often as a composer but it is highly addictive the only real problem is the deadlines they hurt your heart and make you want to die <laughs> yeah. wow. God, perfect person so... for the ending of the mist I guess, <laughs> yeah. to really give, yeah. they're like lisa you're not really nailing it i want you to talk about i want you to think about deadlines <laughs> yeah well and i think that's also probably why he hired aisham so he, I have a quote from him. He says, I'm not slow. I can write quickly. That's just experience. I can cut to the chase. If I think about a project, if I can really do my homework, talk to the director, and if I understand what he wants, um, I can get where I need to go pretty quickly. The only time I make a mistake is if I don't do that homework, if I don't communicate, then I miss the concept in the filmmaker's world. So I think him and Darabont had a good relationship and Aisham was able to just maybe like yeah sure i can do that darabont was clear about what he wanted and they just connected and he was probably able to deliver that music really quickly um to to fit their schedule which sounds like it was pretty hectic it was a smart choice too because you know it's being 2007 the first movie i thought of was no country for old men Mm -hmm. because carter burwell i believe did the score for that one he does all the scores so it probably made i'm sure he did um no country but that's a pretty minimalistic no score movie also and it's so and by having it be very um i guess the word i think it was like diegetic almost or it's just like it just feels like it's part of the world it allows for the violence to puncture you so much more yeah and i think that's i think that's a smart move here because if it was too heightened and i'm thinking of like Look, I love 2017's It, but like so much of the horror and so much of the tension is just like these is, you know, um, Benjamin Wallfish's like score. It's like, like, it's like like telling you when to be scared. Yes. (laughs) And I and I think this one just feels so much more organic and, you know, to to Darabont's point, documentary like. Um, Well, well, it is so many characters. Oh, sorry. Oh, there's so many characters. And those dynamics are so important that if mm-hmm. you were underscoring too too much, I think it, you know, Darabont, I think wants you to kind of struggle and like see where that is and not really know where to like place your alliances and kind of figure out how you're feeling about it and oh, what absolutely. you would do. Yeah. And too much music there would take away from that. And it's, yeah, it's more tied to the action than it is the characters, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. I, I clocked it and it's, there's no music until... Melissa McBride's character, Melissa McBride, right? What's her name? Yeah, uh, Melissa the McBride, mother. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not until she leaves the supermarket that's the first bit of music you get. So crazy. There's really? No music during the, the the alarms going off during the little mini earthquake. There's no music at all. That's a good it's choice, just, though. He's trusting you. He's trusting himself. A lot yeah. of the time, I don't. You know, you don't notice the score. I think that makes a kind of a good score <laughs> when mm-hmm. you're first watching a movie is when you don't quite notice it at first, mm-hmm. but. What I did notice throughout this is the amount of the drums sound very tribal, mm-hmm. like a tribal drum. And if you are thinking about this alternate reality where these animals exist, there is a, a you know, 
likely maybe not likelihood but there's a chance that there's a creature that is the the like humanoid creature mm-hmm. so thinking about like maybe the kind of music that they would make in their dimension mm-hmm. like very tribal like like you said there's not a lot of flutes and and horns there's a lot of drumming and like percussionist yeah. sounds yeah yeah so it I, Robert Redford, he also worked with him on A River Runs Through It Great and movie. Lines for Lambs. Yeah. So he oh, said, Lines for Lambs. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> we have a fun anecdote about that movie, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Another time. I, I think he just kind of sums him up really well. He said, Mark is a man who really lives his craft. One of the most attractive features about him is that he knows how to keep things simple. I like music that is subtle, but still supports the drama and is there for a reason. And Mark did that so beautifully. And yeah, so I think that that's really a skill that he has. And maybe it's because he doesn't come from, I mean, he's self-taught. He never went to school for this, for music. So I think he's just really keying in to the film and following that and coming at it from that perspective. Yeah. And I feel like that definitely helps this film. And listening to this uh, apart from the movie is a totally different experience. Wait, do they have like tracks somewhere for it? Or is it like... Yeah, it's on Spotify. Really? Okay. You know, it's, it's like, it's really interesting listening to it separately just because it's like, I there's lots of stuff I didn't necessarily hear or pay attention to because you're so engaged in the scene and it's quiet. It's not like the score is like, yeah. Yeah. you know, turned up really high. Like it is underneath. Okay. So it's never overpowering. When I was um, also for the, uh, the Spotify, Rachel Reeves, you were in the 0.0003% score. The song at the beginning is also the jazz song at the beginning. That's when he's painting just mm. for, that's also a Mark Isham song. Oh, but it's wow. Not, okay. It's not for this movie though. It actually, it's called the vicious blues and it came from a movie called Mrs. Parker in the vicious circle that was from 1994. Oh, what the hell? I, this. I love how you just pulled that one. Like, ah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll dust off that, you know? An Alan Rudolph <laughs> film. No idea how it got, you know, mm. maybe he owned the rights to it or uh, something, but that's what that is. <laughs> well, I think we've covered pretty much all facets of the production considering we're, I think, two hours into this. I have a couple <laughs> more facts that I want to throw out there before we close out this section. Um, so despite, and this is all from IMDb, so, you know, oh, don't boy, come at me. Look, you know, some of them, they, these all seem, these all check out from what I've seen from quotes, though. Uh, so despite the setting in Maine, the film was shot entirely in Louisiana and Texas. To Frank Darabont's delight, though, Stephen King could not distinguish it from Maine when watching the film. Um, and there's a funny moment where, in the making of, where King talks about how he wanted to visit the set. And he was mm. like, oh, was like, but I didn't realize it was like 600 miles. He's like, it's funny because it, it just gates the film. He's like, oh, I typed it into MapQuest and I was going to print it out. And I was just like, oh, you're so, he's so adorable. Um, so Brent Norton's Mercedes, Crushed by the Tree, one of their first you know, conversations in the movie. It was a rental that had been in an accident and it was going to be repaired. So the production paid to use it with the understanding they wouldn't damage it, damage it further. But uh, miscommunication led to it. Um, being ripped apart, the upholstery, denting the body, scratching the paint, and leading to thousands of dollars in extra bills. Um, producer Denise uh, Huth said, that was a big fuck up. <laughs> um, that was half the budget, probably. Yeah, and so, and this is the last question I have on here. So, Darabont wanted to cast King in a, ca- in a cameo here, a supporting role. <laughs> and King turned it down, and the role went to Brian Libby, who plays the biker who gets split in half. Oh, gosh. Now, I think it's funny and tongue-in-cheek to imagine, like, oh, King being in this role, and then that's his lower half. 
Although I would argue that would have taken me right out of the goddamn movie. Totally out. I would would, have been. You can't do it for this movie. No. No. Where, though, would you have put King as a cameo if you had to? Leaving the supermarket before in a web in the pharmacy. (laughs) I like the web. The web in the pharmacy is cool, too. Yeah. Especially since he played a pharmacist in, um, in. I would say when he's driving to the supermarket. He leans up and goes, "Oh, hey, Joe! <laughs> uh, it's always Joe after his. He's named after his son. Joe yeah, Davis, yeah, like that. I would. I'm like, oh, good to see you, David. And that's it. We're bye. Good to see you, Stephen. And then we're done. That's 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 what I would do. I could see it. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I'm glad it didn't happen. Glad Same. it ultimately didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. um, Especially for that character. Can you imagine? Oh my God! It would just been distracting. It, yeah, very distracting. It's like, hey, can you hold this wire around your waist? And you know, um. All right, well, look, we've talked about the, the talent behind the camera. Now it's time to discuss the stars, but more specifically, the film's heroes and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, <laughs> All right, heroes and villains. We talk about all of the characters in the cast. Well... We have a lot of them. <laughs> we, this is a, a whole supermarket uh, filled with uh, heroes and villains. Who is the bad guy, though? Well, I think it's a little up for debate. I'm going to go back to Tapper and King from Nightline. Uh, yes. Justin, uh, take yes. the Tapper. <laughs> In the mist, it's a toss-up who's worse, the monsters or some of the people. Who are the bad guys in Stephen King books? <laughs> They're always the fears that are inside the people. The bad guy are ruled by their fears instead of ruling their fears themselves. When fear takes over with people, they do bad things. That's true for Jack Torrance, and it's true for Mrs. Carmody and the people who get on her side in the mist. Um, God, I always love... I know we, he listens to this show, so I'm always wondering what he laugh. thinks about. I wonder what he thinks about uh, me doing just basically David Lynch. It is David Lynch. It's just, at this point, it's just absolutely. He said that David, David Lynch, Lynch can't do normal people, and he's yeah. like, well, then, but then Mike Rothman can't do Stephen King. Either. I can't. No, it's funny because he there were early interviews where I listened to him where I thought he did sound like David Lynch, but uh, you know, not so much anymore. Uh, anyway, let's start with the man of the hour, boy, oh boy. beyond Darabont, uh, Thomas Jane. So. Thomas Jane, David Drayton, and I love how I pulled from Wikipedia, so they give uh, an explanation of who they are, which is interesting. Usually they just have the name, but Wikipedia says, a painter who ends up trapped in the supermarket (laughs) with his son, Billy. Well, that's pretty to the point. Sure. Um, I love Jane in this, and I I think he was the first choice by Darabont, uh, first actor that Darabont sent the script. I'll be honest, I can't think of anyone else to do this role. I think this is the perfect Jane role. I've always said that I think he's one of the great everyman. I think in a perfect world, um, well, not a perfect world, because I actually like Gary Sinise as, as Stu, but like Jane could be a Stu. Like he is, for me, the the perfect Stephen King lead. I think you throw him any book out there and he could just absolutely run with it. I really wanted to play Sandy in From a Few Okay, which we talk about in our interview, which mm-hmm. you should say tune and listen to. Justin, I know you're a big Jane head. You yeah. were with me in 2017 when we first talked to him. Is this your favorite Jane performance? That's tough because I do think he's extremely underrated and underused, or he's not utilized properly. I feel like he he ends up in a lot of these kind of B movies or movies that people never will never even hear of for the rest mm-hmm. of their lives. Favorite performance, maybe okay. Favorite lead performance, yes, yeah. But I still think 
him, Todd Packer in a Boogie Nights is <laughs> unbelievable. Hard to beat. He's he is great. so, He's so good. crazily great magnetic in that. And that's that's tough to be like magnetic when you're surrounded by John C. Riley, Mark Wahlberg, and Alfred Molina and everybody yeah. else. But he's yeah. he makes it his own. He to me feels like a character actor stuck in a leading man's body. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I like think that. he's a ter- terrific actor. Rarely does he play the same role twice, at least in the notable movies. Mm-hmm. You don't watch this and say, oh, this is Todd Packer. This is the guy from Deep Blue Sea. This is the guy from 1922. This is the guy from Hung. He really does go out of his way to find a different way into his characters. And I think he's he's great here. I can't. It's hard to imagine anybody else in the role. Yeah. What do you love, Rachel, about Jane? Or do you not love about Jane? I, I don't know. I don't, where Where no, is your fandom lie for Jane? <laughs> I do love him. I think... I mean, not to be that person that always talks about Charles Bronson, but it's like similar to why I love Charles Bronson so much. Kind of just that like really relatable every man kind of character that is able to enter all of these sort of different situations, never got his due as an actor, you know, is only properly utilized in like certain things. And I think that that's really familiar. And there's something very endearing about that. I think here it's really important because he's you believe him and he's not like that swaggery leading man that just comes in and is like, all right, everybody, this is what we're going to do. Like you see his compassion, you see his anxiety, you see his yep. fear. He's, but he's also really capable and calm and being able to balance that I think is tricky. And I don't know. I love the language he uses too. Like yep. when he talks about like, you know, are you just being willfully dense? Yeah. Or like, oh, I am I impugning the their manhood? Like, so he's like an intelligent, successful artist, but also able to like really fit in with all of these people in this like smaller town and not kind of alienate them um, intentionally. I think he gets better as the movie goes on, but it's kind of, I, I just, it's those small details that he's able to sell and just kind of the nuance of his performances in general that I think is just, yeah, underrated. Yeah. I'm just thinking of Charles Bronson now in this role. Like, <laughs> he's like, Mrs. Mrs. Comedy, would you please step away from the second door? <laughs> then rips off his shirt. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Billy, go over there for a little bit. I'll be right back. I promise. <laughs> I think nuance is the perfect word. I think I actually think this is my favorite Tom Jane performance. It's yeah. so the amount of the different emotions he has to go through in this. Mm-hmm. From I think specifically about the scene in which the bag boy Norm is killed and he gets mm-hmm. in um what's the character's name's face, but it's Sad- William Sadler's face. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you did this. This was your fault. Yeah. Like, did you get a good look at what you fucking did? Like, he's lost his... He's so angry. And then he immediately has to go into, okay, okay, now we have to figure this out. We have to figure this out. And, like, going between those, like, intense moments and then having to, like, literally swallow it so he can talk to his son and not scare yeah. him. Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah. It's incredible. And like, I know a lot of people point to like the absolutely devastating scenes, like the scene in the car as like standout moments. But I even think <laughs> one of my favorite moments is after Ollie uh, uh, shoots Mrs. Yes. Carmody. Yes. And he's like, thank you, Ollie. And then he's like, I wouldn't have done it if I if I didn't have to. And he goes, that's why I said thank you. And it's yeah. such a throwaway mm-hmm. line, but he does it so well. I, I truly think this is this might be his best performance start to finish. He's just incredible. It's certainly up there. I mean, he the thing I love about him is that 
when we think about leading man, you mentioned Bronson. I I, I feel like he he's so close to Bruce Willis in '88 mm. when he did mm. Die Hard. Yeah. Before Bruce Willis really leaned into like the idea that like, oh man, I'm you know I can I can do everything. Well, yeah, you could I, see I, Thomas Jane doing Moonlighting and Die Hard. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And he kind of did because he did. It's, you it, know, he's, he's done like Deep a real Lucy. man. Like you would see yes. walking down the street, yeah. like or your friend's dad that you're like, that's a cool dad. But like it's <laughs> you like I don't know, like well, it's, a hot, it's a hot dad, but it's believable. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the believability is really the the key for me here because I I would absolutely see this person and he's honestly the person I would think about if I'm in the, the, the supermarket. And so there's in, in that capacity, he's just a natural leader. I'm glad you mentioned the bag boy though, because that scene is so intrinsic to his personality because he really comes out as the true hero because he's literally telling all of them not to go out there. Mm-hmm. And even when the bag, bag boy Shermanator like gives him <laughs> shit and like tells him to fuck off, he's still trying to save his life. And yeah. he's still, as opposed to like me, who'd probably be like, fine, fucking oh, go out all right, there. fine. Go fuck, go fuck off then. Go, go out there and see what happens. Um, fuck around and find and out. He, and he's <laughs> exactly like, and he still wants to save him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even when he's trying to save the private, he has to kind of be held back by his own team who there's like literally two or three people holding him back to not be the hero because in that mm-hmm. moment he can't be, and mm-hmm. they need him. And there are little things like that, that, that Jane just does so effortlessly. And I kind of try, and I kind of proud him about it in our, in our latest interview. And I try, I ask him like to kind of give me his, his, uh, his leading man, uh, heroes that he grew up with. And he kind of goes on a whole long history of just all the, the leading mans that, that basically have come to define the hero in Hollywood. And you can kind of get a sense of who he's gleaned from the most. Uh, but I love him in this movie and the biggest, the most depressing thing still for me in pop culture, the biggest what if, and I bring it up every time I watch this movie because he's tied to Darabont, is the fact that he was busy doing Hung, which I love that show. I watch all three seasons live every Sunday when it was on. But the fact that he couldn't play Rick Grimes on The Walking Dead is still one of the biggest crimes for me in the last 15 That's years. so interesting to think about. I, yeah, it's a lot to... Because you watch this and know. it's like, this entire cast is in The Walking Dead which we'll talk about in just a second. Mm-hmm. And he's the most notable one missing. And you watch that first pilot and you, I, I, look, in no shade to Andrew Lincoln, I actually think, I know we've made fun of him over the years, Justin. We have like, made fun of him. I think Andrew Lincoln's Corey. pretty good in that movie, in, in that, uh, in that series. But Jane's in that show, I, I, I don't drop off. Yeah, I might have I'll watched it. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, are we saving the Walking Dead talk? No, keep going. Keep, keep, okay. Might as well. Might as well. Leads I, I mean, everyone else. look, I was exhausted by zombies, but when I found that Frank Darabont yeah. was doing the Walking Dead and all these people from The Mist and all of his other movies were going to be on it. That is what got me involved. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the comics. Yeah. That's what got me involved in the show. Yeah. And I mean, look, let's just, let's just be honest. Yeah. Besides Love Actually... What else is Andrew Lincoln? I know, I know, it's true, <laughs> and and I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, I do. He's been too busy with Walking Dead. He has. Like <laughs> I yeah, but what's he done since he left the show? To be fair, though, like Jane made the right choice on paper when you think about it. Like yeah. if Alexander Payne's coming to you, hey, we're you're going to be the lead of an HBO show. HBO at the time is the top. I mean, that is the de facto prestige TV outlet. Yeah, yeah. It made sense. It did. Now, 
here's another what if that makes this even more compounding. And this happened. So when I was when he was when I was doing the rounds on Hot Summer Nights, um, which I love, I'm the, seemingly the only critic that absolutely love that movie. Um, Jane is in that, and I had a conversation with one of the, some of the producers afterwards, and I mentioned the Walking Dead thing, and I was like, God, you know, one of the things that drew me to this film and going to see it was not Chalamet and not Mike and Monroe, but it was having Thomas Jan here because I've just been in his corner forever. And we talked about the dead and how like a lot of times like, you know, just Hollywood just had like, they've just absolutely slept on him. And someone there mentioned that he was also up for Don Draper. Yes. I think he was runner up. That is fucking crazy to me. So like to have these two what ifs and ultimately look three seasons of hung. It's fucking great. I think it's a great show. I think it's an underrated show. It's, I think it's one of the more gems in, in HBO's catalog that, that kind of had a three season run. That's just great. He's very good on that show. And he was yeah. nominated for Golden Globe every year. But I do wonder, there is a what if here where he's either Don Draper no, or, or I don't think Don Draper works, but I do think that Rick Rimes was Jane. Yeah. And yeah. and this movie is absolute proof of that, that it should have worked that way. But anyway, um, anything else on Jane? Oh, he's great in 1922. Just, also. He's, oh yo, that's, yeah. Love him in that. Man, that's his some underrated movies. There you go. I know. Yeah, I that might be one of the the best Stephen King adaptations. That's my yeah. top ten. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. good. Certainly the best since since this one. Yeah. Um all right. Let's talk about her as foil, Marsha Gay Hart. <laughs> oh yeah. And Here I'm gonna go. keep reading these Wikipedia descriptions. As Mrs. Carmody, a religious fanatic who believes the mist to be the wrath of God. Um I, I'm a, I'm not, I can't say I'm like a huge fan of Marsha Gay Harden because I just don't know if I've seen a lot of stuff for her in it. But like, I think she's fantastic in this. Although I do think that there's a line from the New York Times article I read where they said, the one suggestion Mr. King made to Dara, Mr. Darabont was to allow the, the character of Mrs. Carmody, a religious fanatic who whips up the people trapped in the supermarket into a frenzy of expiation to evolve a little more slowly. And there are a lot of deleted, there's a couple of deleted scenes with her in there. I think this is the case of little goes a long way. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think this movie could fall apart if we have too much of Carmody in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, she's she's a lot to handle Yeah, as a viewer. But I think she's fantastic in this. And she's awesome. I think she's the, kind of a big get for this yeah, movie, though, she right? Was. Like, yeah. she, I mean, she had done some pretty serious things before this. So I feel like she was kind of important to give this, like, you know, because I mean, a lot of these actors are famous now, but they weren't necessarily familiar faces then. Yeah. She was coming off of Mystic, Mystic River. River, Mystic River, Mona Lisa Smile. Yeah. I think the um, Into the Wild that year. Into the Wild, The Hoax, which mm-hmm. I love that movie. That's, um, and she's very good on. And confess, Fletch. She's this over the top. Yeah. Oh yeah, she was ca- great. Countess. She's very funny space cowboys. <laughs> space Listen, cowboys. We're trying to keep it positive. She's Joe Black. I like space cowboys. She was in Meet Joe she Black. She is in Meet Joe Black. Oh man, we're trying to keep it positive. Um, <laughs> I love her. I, the, I'm a huge Marsha Gay yeah, Harden she's fan, good. and I actually like. Like I said, I read the short story or the novella when I was prepping for this, and I actually like what they did with Mrs. Carmody in the movie because in the novella she obviously is a religious fanatic but she's more of the like woo woo 
religious mm-hmm. fanatic. Like they talk about how she like you know has a crystal shop or something, and mm. she mm. Um, or an antique. Shop. Yeah, it was an antique shop, but she's always like touting these like conspiracy theories, and like she she gives people elixirs and stuff. So she's almost like more like of a witchy woman in and like mm. even it, describing what she's dressed as uh, in the novella compared to what she is in the movie. I think that it was the right choice simply because of like the some of the things she says like i remember when she's she's going on one of her tirades and she's like you know stem cell research abortion she's very much so like a right-wing conspiracy theorist who you know uh ends up in an extreme situation this is how that person would react uh but i think she's fucking great and oh how satisfying is it when she yeah. gets shot in the Oh, it's stomach. so good. Well, that's why the you have to resolve tap. the Arrowhead project thing. Yeah. Because yeah. that makes it that much more of, get this woman out of yeah. here. The stabbing, the, the, the stabbing of the private, like and like letting it all happen it, it, with her just watching Jessup just run. Although I love her reaction. There's a shot where once he's stabbed, it, they wisely cut to Marsha Gerharden, who's watching it unfold. And even she's just like, I've gone too far, mm-hmm. but then she leans into it anyway. Yeah, and then yep. she's just yeah. sort of like, oh, but... Point yeah. of return. Yeah. Um, um, I will say, though, I, I forgot to mention this. <laughs> if he had just shot her in the head... Oh, yeah. Then David would have just killed himself and, and never have known that... Uh, oh, oh, true. Because they would have had one more bullet. One more, yeah. It was a six-shooter. Does the movie still work and have an oomph if they do have all the 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 bullets and he shoots it and then the mist dissipates i think at that point you've got to have him screaming yeah Yeah. as opposed to being like because it almost feels like a wink wink nudge nudge like oh four keep driving by yeah wait a minute maybe i'm talking myself into this ending it's even more (laughs) holy shit but uh yeah it's not as cruel an ending in a lot of ways because they're just dead and they'll never know well and that's the thing is that david i mean he's dead no matter what like the military's there to save him he's not a person no, anymore no. his wife died no. he had to shoot his he son in the, set, in the head <laughs> like he's not coming back from that he's not gonna like survive this and then be like well just gonna pick up my life where i left off like he's dead or he's maybe a dead man oh no now they're to be gonna be fair though too. It's gonna be like, <laughs> david to after david. Like, i told you i'm not talking about the mist anymore it's a bad time <laughs> look yeah. all this guy has to do is just drive down to atlantic city He's 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 Thomas Jane. He could go meet up someone new. <laughs> this will be like that movie. Was it that, that movie Lucky Man or um, the the one with Drew Barrymore and um, the guy that played Hulk? Um, I can't remember. Eric Bana. It'll be like a uh, you know that he's oh, like he, you know I can't remember what it's called. It's called Lucky something and Lucky he, uh, you. Lucky you. Yeah, he's just gonna hop around from casino to casino. It'll be like leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> like oh, I killed my kids and or I killed my kid and. Um, you know, remember that miss that happened, and you know that, that's the sequel. And he's gonna be fine. He'll be fine. He He'll goes the way of Todd Packer, probably. And just yeah, this is pre coke all the time. Yeah, you know, he's not thinking about anything else. Um, yeah, Carmody's great in this. I think. Uh, I I think the the resolution to where she goes is is wonderful. But I also just love right before it, she's drinking milk. Like someone just wrote, did a post recently. Yeah. It was like, oh, sorry, it's Todd Parker. Todd Parker, okay. Todd, Todd Packer Packer's from, from the, the office. office. Yeah. yeah, okay. Anybody out there, please hope you listened and didn't um, quit earlier. Someone tweeted yesterday, or it was maybe this morning, of just like, if you see someone with drinking milk, you know, that's- They're a psychopath. Bad news in, in, high, in, in horror movies. Yeah, because you think of like Allison Williams in, in uh, Get Out, um, mm. 
there's the god damn it, I'm missing the other ones. There's other ones in the in the in the tweet. But I was thinking about it watching this. And I was like, the milk adds something to this. There's just something so it's like it's gross. Like yeah. who chooses to like I'm gonna I'm just gonna sip drink this milk. milk. Ugh. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. good no, milk no milk shaming. No milk shaming. But uh <laughs> Do you drink milk, Justin? No, I don't. I I, yeah. I don't even like a milkshake. That's fun. You know? Yeah. I'm not I'm not, I'm not saying not like same. oh I just go a long day at work milk. let me get some vitamin d totally milk, you know yeah no. cereal sure but not. so nobody else here drinks milk carefully i did or when not i was carefully, a kid when, when, uh, growing up like with dinner you'd have a glass of milk but now when Through i go teeth. home and my parents yeah. are like you want a glass of milk i'm like no no <laughs> no you ever warm that shit up <laughs> they used to of course it, I don't in want a glass school of milk. <laughs> you'd get those cartons at, at lunch if you bought lunch at, oh yeah at yeah, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah but, but i i always loved it because they also still had lemonade too that was in there and i'd always get the lemon i don't think i went an entire on my 12 years in that school when they offered the milk every day i don't think i ever went for milk I don't I think I was buying like vanilla Coke at that point, destroying myself. But. Yeah, I think I was, I think I was, uh, you know, getting myself a pint. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, oh, um, bad boy Rothman. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, be- I think, I think, uh, Marsha Gay Harden's great in this. So. Okay. Well, let's move on to Lori Holden as Amanda Dumfrey, a new teacher at the local school. She carries a Colt revolver with her at all times. Um, Perfect. Sure. I think like Darabont. I have always had a crush on her. She's I, so beautiful. I just love her and everything she's in. The Majestic, she's great. The X-Files, she's great. She's wonderful in The Walking Dead. She's fantastic in The Americans in the final, I think the final two seasons. Um, just reliable. I I have a couple of questions related to her character. I want to save the pound cake, but um, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's kind of hard to discuss her character without discussing some of the, the smuttier aspects of it that are tied to the novella. But I love her character here, and I love the immediacy of her bond with Jane, and I buy it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think I think that, or with David, I mean, um, and I think that's so integral to the nov- to the novella, and it's something that King does really good at is kind of forging these relationships fast. And I know that there's some people that are out there like they'll be like, uh, why do they, you know, what they kind of jump to the sex a little too fast sometimes in his books, but like. I don't know. It's very rare in in, in his books that I, I kind of like really roll my eyes at, at two characters coming together. Now, granted, that's not what happens in this movie, but it certainly seems like it's. She definitely has the maternal figure here. Mm-hmm. Once the the you know the market comes in. Anyway, I digress. I just Justin. I know. Oh, sorry. Oh, go for it. You go for it. I Ashley. was just gonna say. I just feel like she she saw a capable man who had. I don't know if it was like the ideas that he had or ideals that he had. He knew she knew that he cared about his son and she knew that like whatever he did, whatever decisions he made would be to save his son. So if she sticks with that unit, she has a better chance of surviving. Like I just feel yeah. like she she went towards she gravitated towards the most capable person and he was her one chance of survival. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, um, I, I think it's an improvement actually from the novella. I, Same. I don't really get a romantic chemistry between the two of them in the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. I get chemistry, but I don't look at them like, oh, even when they leave, I don't think like, oh, they're going to end up together. I, I, that never really crosses my mind when I'm watching, when I'm watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're reading a novella, because of a certain scene, that is where your mind kind of drifts off to. Right. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like the platonic nature of the relationship. Same. It's survival. It's, it's still pretty rare to see, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I liked I liked her in this too. I, yeah. You know, I've been a fan of hers, like you said, Mike, since... What's her name? Alexandra Koz- 
Cosmopolis from the X Files. Yeah, uh, she's a big Greek name. I forgot. Yeah, really she's was. she's kind of like uh, she's always in the shadows. She's kind of like the opposite of Crycheck in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love her in that. Uh, Rachel, thoughts on on uh, Amanda? I mean, I love that she she feels like a partner. Yes. To mm-hmm. you know, to Jane's character, like she's not dependent on this man. Mm-hmm. She's not like, oh, like help me. You know, she she doesn't give off that kind of like weak you know, damsel in distress energy. Like she's just, she's reasonable. She's logical. And she finds a group of people that she can align with and they're all supporting each other. And that, I mean, you see that later, I think too, in, in Walking Dead, like she's able to really convincingly portray that character. And it's a nice character to have in this situation for sure. And yeah, I like the change. The changes that they made from the novella i would much rather see this version of her character than than that one it's just not necessary in my opinion yeah i also oh, yeah. totally believe that if something were to happen to david she would do whatever she could to protect billy a hundred percent totally yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah but yeah they introduced her as a teacher for a reason too. yeah like she's mm-hmm. good kids she likes kids so that made sense she never had her own. i, I love Yep. I, yeah. I like her scenes with Marsha Gay Harden the best. I think that oh, that man. that bathroom incident, which just that that line that Gay Harden has to do, it's like if I want a friend, I'll just you know squat I'll and just shit, shit one, one out. out. So disgusting. <laughs> but like she holds her ground so much in those scenes, and like I just love when she's just kind of spitting it back at people. Um, well, and she smacks Marsha Gay Harden real yeah. hard <laughs> at one point yeah, during yeah. her first outburst of like this. Yeah. This happened for a reason. Da 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 da. I like that Marsha Gay Harden not only gets slapped, she gets hit with a can of peas. She gets yeah. shot like, <laughs> yeah. like she gets shot twice. She gets shot twice. Out. Like she went through it. Yeah, yeah. Love her. And honestly, if you watch the Majestic, her role with Carrie in that movie, I couldn't stop thinking about like when I was reading eleven twenty two sixty three which we'll be doing a book episode probably this weekend next year. Um, she was the first person that came to mind for Sadie Dunhill, mm, yeah, um, especially around the 2001 era with Majestic. Mm. And I would not, and I wouldn't be surprised if King saw the way that their relationship buds in that movie and got a lot of ideas for his novel. I'm just saying there's a lot in that movie that you watch and you're like, Oh, this feels like 11, 63. And honestly, you know, no shade to Franco, especially given his past. Um, I think that Carrie in 2001 probably would have been a big better Jake, but we'll get there next year. Um, huge fan <laughs> of Holden. Shade Franco, it's okay. Yeah, I think we could. Um, Andre Brower as Brent Norton, a big city attorney and David's neighbor. I'm biased. I love Brower just because uh, he in Brooklyn 999 has a Corgi named Cheddar. And I think his <laughs> relationship with Cheddar is by far one of the greatest on-screen relationships in the history of, of, uh, television. Um, but I also just love Brower cause he's in one of my favorite movies, a stealth rental called frequency. And, uh, so he thinks he's talking to Johnny in the future. <laughs> future. <laughs> I love Brower so much. And I, and every time I watch this movie, I want him, I want Norton and David to be friends still. And it kills me every time when they finally just have that huge giant rift in the supermarket. But I got to ask, do you buy his, his, his heel turn and mistrust here? Uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we know, I, I know people like this though, you know, yeah. the people that you're kind of like, Oh, maybe they're not that bad after all. But then, for some reason, there's a defense mechanism or there's a sense of big city versus small city 
which honestly, I still have bias about when it comes to certain things. I still think about election decisions in certain regions of this country, and I automatically go to that, well, they're just, you know, ignorant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a major bias I've got. So I buy the whole dynamic of, well, hey, David, thanks for thanks for taking me here today. But then when the shit hits the fan, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the guy. Yeah. I'm not going to trust yeah. anybody else. Yeah, and Brower, he's, he's always fucking great. He's, he's great so in good. glory. He's great in homicide. He's great in men of a certain age, for God's sakes. You know, he's just a good actor. <laughs> I forgot he was in that. Jesus, that probably had like four, four or five seasons too. Um, I think I watched the whole thing. Did you really? I, yeah, it was like my TNT. Are you fucking kidding me? I have never watched- known this about you. <laughs> oh, yeah. You watched Men of a Certain Age and you haven't seen Curb Enthusiasm. I, I'm going to lose my mind. Ray Romano. Like- look, Ray Romano, Scott Bakula, and Andre Brower. Of course I'm going to watch this show. These, this is like my trifecta. You know, these, this is these are great trifecta includes Ray Romano. <laughs> have you ever talked to anyone about this? About you watching this show? I don't think I probably you talked to my brother about it. Yeah, I probably did, yeah. What a, what a fun, effortless show. You know, I'm sure it was great. Did you watch Kaminsky Method also? Or? Uh, no, listen, I'm not okay. into that shit. All right. Okay. <laughs> hey, I like Alan Arkin also and and, and Douglas. Anyway, any uh, other thoughts on Brower? Well, I just think that it, you know, the shit had hit the fan when, you know, the tree had fallen on his car. Like that, the shit had hit the fan for them then. It was just a different kind of shit hitting a different kind of fan. So like mm. in that moment, you do have to kind of team up with a person that maybe you don't trust or you don't particularly like but we're gonna make nice and we're gonna get through this and this storm or whatever so when the shit hits the fan again and it's even bigger i totally buy that he's like fuck you i am not gonna no absolutely not i'm not gonna be played tricks on by he calls them hicks you Mm -hmm. know and he, he he has said to them multiple times in that scene that like i've heard you talking behind my mac my back i know you don't like me so yeah i totally buy it and he's just he's so smug and he's perfect but i do think that they sort of with that last line that you talked about earlier that like well i guess the joke would be on me then that almost to me seemed like a moment of like hey we'll send back help and yeah. we can deal oh, yeah, with I our still differences he was going later. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never doubt that. Yeah, but yeah, they they set him. They set it up for that choice. Yeah, to work mm-hmm. because that that just that competitive the background mm-hmm. with you know with the, the neighborhood disputes and that they've gone to court together. He tried to like, sue him for a moment. He's like willing to like let it go, but when it like gets all thrown down on the line he's he just goes right back to like i'm not gonna no fuck you yeah. like, <laughs> i'm not gonna you know so it's like they've got this competitive back and forth already and then it just exacerbated the whole thing and so it makes that decision for him to kind of go that far it makes it make sense yeah well, he's not a monster antagonist no. like mm-hmm. carmody is no you know that's the other big difference too he's just stuck in his own ways and has his own it's like I said, I probably would have been the Brent in that situation. I w- my mind cannot wrap itself around what was actually happening. Yeah, and if like, you, unless I actually saw if you it, want to take like know? a political standpoint, like when we were talking about politics, like the it, Mrs. Carmody being the antagonist or whatever, like she's the mm-hmm. like right wing nut job, whereas mm-hmm. like when it comes to Norton. It's just more like I voted for Bernie and you voted for Biden. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where it's like we just yeah, both a have comp. a yeah, different yeah. A really good idea of this. We have the same outcome. We want the same thing, but we just have a different idea of how to get to it. Totally. Yeah. 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 Do you think he lives? No. No, no. he died. I thought he died. No, they don't. That. I thought that that was his body that was dragged back with the rope. Nope, that's the guy. No, that was supposed to be Stephen biker. King. <laughs> that's oh, the that's the biker. Oh, yeah. the Sons of Anarchy. I mean, so that guy dies, but he could potentially. I think I he's mean, dead. I, I, I think, think cause you don't see him at the end. I think he does die. Yeah, I think he's dead. Oh well. Oh well. Bummer. Sorry, Brent. Uh, yeah. Also dead. Ollie Weeks, played by Toby Jones. Now this that's is the supermarket's assistant manager who is experienced with guns. This is a guy. That always gets the short end of the stick in terms of roles because he was, you know, he got to play Truman Capote, but he was overshadowed oh, by God. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Got to play Alfred Hitchcock, but overshadowed by Anthony Hopkins. I've always been a fan of Toby Jones. I, I you know, he's he pops up randomly sometimes. And I'm always surprised. Like I think I think he's in like one of the Jurassic World movies, and I'm just like, what he's going to be in Indiana Jones. The new Is he gonna, Indiana oh yeah, movie. so I'm excited for that there. But I think he's a perfect side piece for Jane, and I think he's a total king construct that's manifest on screen. Um, what do we make it to? Like, is he kind of a Ollie's stealth a MVP of this movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ollie's a fucking G from start to finish. Ollie rules as a character, and I think Toby's great. Well, and yeah. he's that like traditional guy, like in your own community that like you just kind of underestimate. Like you would never expect him to like step up and kind of take on this leadership role. He's got. He's like, oh yeah, I'm a you know sharpshooter and like or whatever. Like he's just this guy that gets judged i think but actually has a lot of valuable skills to offer and mm-hmm. i think that's also toby jones right i i mean the fact that he can cover his natural accent as well as he does in this movie no is... he does a great job with that <laughs> i was shocked <laughs> when he was like on the making of thing i was like wait what like i didn't realize that how thick of his accent was jesus um, oh yeah he's definitely from uh the britain as it were yeah. No, he's great in this. He's always look. Toby Jones is always good. This is what I was talking about earlier. Like he's just a great character actor. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you got a movie with Toby Jones in it, I, even if you don't like the movie, I don't think you're going to be saying, "God, I wish Toby Jones wasn't in that." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. He's dependable. He's just a dependable actor. I think that making him that character too. I mean, just size and stature wise was so clever because he's not really described in the novella like he he does all the things but he's not physically described and i think that that was such a good choice um and also just he's capable from the get-go every decision he makes is is a capable decision and the fact that he dies the way he does is so unfair it's so unfair because he's got that moment of triumph on his face Yeah. yeah Just before, right? Yeah. He saves them. It's so sad. It's it's a uh, it reminds me of another similar scene in uh the Lost World Jurassic Park, uh which <laughs> oh. uh, I think it was Richard Spate. Yeah. Like he he uh he gets killed uh by trying by basically sacrificing him and, and splitting two, just like the like uh, Ollie does here, which is so depressing. Yeah. Um fun fact, his father, Freddie Jones, appeared in uh, Firestarter in nineteen eighty four. I had no idea that that was his father. I know Freddie Jones. I just can't believe that. I did not know he was that much older. Wow. Well, I I also forgot to mention that Andre Andre Brower, he was in uh, Salem's Lot, the 2004. Um, Hmm. And he also was a character with the last name Norton in that. We're trying to keep it positive here. (laughs) I know. It's not a great one. Uh, Another King familiar, William Sadler, Mm. is Jim Grondon, a belligerent and weak-minded mechanic. 
Sadler might be the glue for this movie's story in terms of just making sure chaos continues and reigns because he's just, <laughs> he fucks up every scenario of the episodes. Like he seems to be the one that like Darabont tasks in making sure this episode gets set on fire. <laughs> like, sometimes literally. Well, Sadler's career trajectory is, is wild because I remember when I first saw him, it was in Die Hard 2. Yeah. And he feels like he's like six foot five in that movie. Like he feels mm-hmm. like this towering villain, you know, this military general or whatever, who's you know leading the charge to break out this dictator, blah, 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 blah. But then you watch this and he looks like he's like five foot five, I know. diminutive, just like this jerk around town. Like, I, th- you know, I mean, I think uh, we know who William Sadler is, but this is another example of these people who just keep appearing in things and they're so fucking great, but they'll never be above the title. Mm-hmm. Or, or it'll be very rare that they're above the title. But he is equal parts bumbling and scary, which I think is maybe the scariest character you can be yeah. in the real world. He's dangerous. Yeah. Yep. He is. There's a deleted scene, because I, I was watching it again, his friend, you know, his drinking buddy, I was like, oh, yeah, the drinking buddy stays with David's team. That's right. <laughs> and there's a deleted yeah. scene where it actually feels a lot like another Sadler movie, Disturbing Behavior, where he goes up to him. He's like, hey, what are you doing? And then, like, Sadler beats the shit out of him. And and they pulls him away, and it really accentuates just the transformation. Not necessarily, but um, good scene. Again, all these deleted scenes are actually really solid, which is a testament to Darabont's writing. Um, it seems like they're solid, Mike, but they work in the context of – like what if, and then watching yeah. a deleted scene. Like I don't think they're necessary yeah. for the movie. No. The no. flow of the movie um, is so perfect that I just, I anything agree. added or subtracted might fuck up the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I mean, his scream, by the way, Sadler's scream in the pharmacy. Ugh. Oh, man. I mean, you believe that he's shattered forever after Oh, that. yeah. Um, he's just... Uh, I have loved Sadler. Uh, My, the, fir- the horror movie that made me fall in love with horror is uh, Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight. So to mm. me, Sadler, if he's in a movie, I, I, I'll watch it. I love him so much. I even love him when he's playing, you know, characters like this that you don't necessarily root for or like. He's just interesting. Yeah, to he watch, is. Too. He's yeah. so talented. Yeah, he's a great character actor. Probably one of the greatest of our generation. I, I would, I would argue. I mean, I, my first thing I saw him in was actually Bill and Ted's Bogus. Oh, oh of yeah, course, yeah. And um, Bogus Journey. Uh, sorry, uh, Bill and Ted heads, but uh, Bill and Ted it, goes it, to hell. Remember the original trailer? That was the which original is title. oh, was it really called that? Yeah. Hey, every time I think about hell, I think of the fact that yeah. that that bunny rabbit in the small corridors. I can that that shattered me for life. Jesus. So, so last fact about Sadler. Yeah, this isn't his first time at the Miss. He played David Drayton in the audio version of the story. Oh, interesting. So hmm. which. Yeah. means that he was a narration because it's all in first person so if this um, took place around the time of trespass and demon knight 100 percent see him playing david right you could yeah yeah um got la- uh, for the, or to round us out let's just keep it to the the main crew so we've got jeffrey demon francis sternhagen both big 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 i would say character actors in a way yeah um, sure. mm-hmm. both also big in king's dominion obviously jeffrey demon who's been in all of darabont stuff green mile um, Shawshank Redemption in the early in the beginning only a minor role in that one he was in um, The Hitcher too I mean I know that's not Stephen King yeah. but a lot yeah. of people forget because he's only in the the last the couple scenes end. yeah 
Yeah, I, I think we debated in the the Hitcher rental for Halloweenies whether or not he's still a fan of um, uh, oh my god, like uh, the the lead in that. Um, why am I? C. Thomas Howell. C. Thomas Howell. If they're still uh, buddy buddies at the end, considering that he pushes them out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got some news uh, for you. No joke. In the Hitcher two, that character does return. And is friends with the C. Thomas Howell character. Wow. Okay. Right. So, so you know, yeah. Spot it. it. Jeffrey um, Demond did not return, but no. it's the character of Dan or the character from that is actually I back in the Hitcher too. I cannot. I've, will I watch the movie? Is not good. No. He's also in um, probably our favorite miniseries, Storm of the Century. Yeah. Yes. So He's great in that. Demond's been around. I would say Demond's one of the most reliable character actors of all time. Yeah. I, I just every time he's in something, I think he's just. I'm always interested in whether he's going to say he has his voice alone is wonderful. I know a lot of people thought he was annoying in Walking Dead as Dale, but I still loved him. And I don't know. I loved him on, and I think he's great in this. I, I, I always get so sad at the end when he's like, well, no one's going to say, uh, we didn't try. And then Stuart yeah. Hanks like, yeah, no one's going to say it. Like who gives a shit? Like, I don't know. So well, something that keeps, we all keep saying is reliable. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes all the way back to the beginning when Darabont was talking about the cast, the, the crew he hired, these uh-huh. weren't Hollywood film veterans, but they were a reliable crew yeah. that he worked with on, on the shield. Yeah. And he knew that that would make things easier. And that's what happens when you get, you know, fucking Francis Sternhagen, Damon, Sadler, Jones, the list goes on and on. Like, yeah, just hire people who are, who are know exactly what to do by all accounts, no drama behind any of these people, no real ego yeah. that you would get from a leading man or woman, you know, and that's, this is what happens. There's there's no small roles here. Like no. I mean, they're all mm. important, and so yeah. like he understood that like every role. I mean, even if it was technically a smaller role, it was still important, and it was important to have somebody who could play that character convincingly and well. Well, there's that quote that from Sternhagen and and also Sadler in the making of where Sternhagen goes, "We're all in this together," and Sadler says, "Everyone's playing the same game," and I agree. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see it on screen. Um, mm-hmm. Sternhagen, another King regular. This is this is her third. Appearance. By the way, Stranger is still alive. Um, Whoa, like she's right adorable. Yeah. She's. I love yeah, her. I love, love her. her. Yeah. Love her yeah. in this. She was in Misery. She was in Golden Years, which uh, we are the only podcast that has two episodes dedicated to Golden <laughs> Years. So go back to that shot. Uh, shot. It was recorded during the pandemic, so that was fun. I think it go a little crazy during the second episode. Um, yeah, I think she's great in this, and I love her humor, and I love how she talks down to Sadler. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. So funny. Underachievers. Just, yeah. I also love she's that wonderful. she was the one that threw the can of peas. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. she's so yeah, small good. and sweet. You don't think that's some yeah. serious old lady Hell energy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all about it. <laughs> you know, you mentioned earlier, Justin, how like you watch The Mist and you wouldn't see this as being Darabont's movie. And and I mentioned the cast. And I, I would say specifically Damon and Sternhagen feel like like not even king constructs but like darabont constructs oh, yeah. like the mm-hmm. way that they have this sort of like sly sense of humor about mm. the way that they look at the world and i think that a lot of darabont's characters which is hard to say because most of them are king characters anyway um but i think of even just the majestic like like damon has a very similar role in this of just kind of being like almost like the grandfather of the situation in a way which is well, funny. fine and damon is also in the blob that that Darabont. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. And oh. it's kind of another. Uh, he's a cop role in that, but unforgiving know, death in that one too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Um, all right. So beyond that, 
any other names we want to shout out? I know you you said that your boy Sam Witwer, think he's good. I think this. he's great in this. Yeah. God, when he that that whole scene, the, the the trial at the supermarket, he is really great, and he's having to go up against fucking Marsha Gay Harden too. Yeah. You know, this is somebody who's been around, who's you know, Coen Brothers movies, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, that's a that's a tough scene to do, and he does a great job there. He's been good. Smallville and the the U.S. being human. The late odds were really I think he's great. Darth for him. Maul now. Is he really? I think he did the huh. voice and is now Darth Maul, maybe, if they do a thing of four with it. So congratulations to him. Uh, I wanted to shout out Alexa Davalos, the cashier at the supermarket. Oh, yeah, a I, crush for I, Justin back in well, the day. Well, she, so it's, her death is pretty much for me, like what I point to and how this movie is just so merciless without obviously pointing to the ending and spoiling it for everyone. But I just think every time I watch that scene with her and the way she gets like the tube neck, hashtag King's Dominion, Mm-hmm. is just so like, yep, that's this movie. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, right yeah. after they have that sweet moment in the back too <laughs> yes. where they're like, why didn't you ever ask me out on a date? That's, <laughs> it's so. That's like the one scene I would cut out because it's like, I get it, but also like unnecessary. It's very McBain, yeah. you know, or well, what's it on The Simpsons when it's like, uh, oh, you got your you get your boat, you're retiring next week? Yeah. And it's just like yeah. setting up like, oh, this person's dead. That, that's yeah. what they avoid, Rachel, by not having David say goodbye to his wife, uh-huh. yeah, like that's yeah. it's yeah, they should. That's that's the one that. scene I would cut out. I just don't think it's necessary. I think there's other ways to like they could have like nodded at their you know they go go back to high school or whatever. Yeah. Like it doesn't make her death any less sad mm-hmm. or yeah. built it up earlier but, on a little yeah. bit more. If you're gonna yeah, do it's like it. right before. Like, Here's everything. Here's the history, and now you're dead in two and seconds. Dead. Yeah, but she does great. So. At one point, Sam Witwer is like smoking a cigarette, which means that he probably either had a pack or at this point, I'm assuming that he just got a pack from like the pharmacy <laughs> or not the pharmacy or from somewhere in the supermarket. And then clearly, you know, Sadler and his man, his buddy are drinking beers. What is the thing? Just real quick. Like what is if you're in the supermarket locked in, what is going to be your advice that you grab just to kind of keep? Oh, keep I would start smoking this, again this for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'd be like, um, yeah. the world's ending. This is the yeah, only yeah, perk. Cigarettes are for me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that I get to smoke that or like, again. Would you do like whippets too, maybe? If they were available, absolutely. <laughs> like that would be my first yeah. thing. Like who has the party drugs in this store? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be like, who has the heroin yeah. here? Um, I've always oh wanted to God. try heroin. Yeah. And can I, all three. Can I, par- <laughs> can I borrow some of those pills um, before Does you kill Does the pharmacy yourself? in this town have heroin? <laughs> yeah. Like, or, yeah. I'm joining you. Let's fuck these spiders. Uh, Give me some yeah. of that Medical heroin. marijuana legal here? Yeah. Is that uh, the pharmacy? <laughs> Anyone else? I mean, we, we have, have like to 10... at least touch on how incredible Big Bill is as a yeah. child performance because yeah. that can make yeah, or break any movie. Yeah. And he is so adorable and he's so he good and he's completely believable anytime that he's freaking out. You know, there are some movies oh, but... where like <sighs> kids freak out in ways that I, I think of. Um, War of the Worlds. I think of uh, yeah. uh, young, what's her toes? Why can't I think of her name? Dakota, Dakota Fanning. Dakota Fanning. She Dakota is Fanning, so yeah. believable when she's just screaming her mm-hmm. head off about how she wants her mom. That's what a kid would do. Like, it's mm-hmm. he's just going to lose it. And he spends a lot of the movie sleeping, but he's great. 
Yeah. He's great. And his last There's... luck. Oof. Oh, I prefer God. this child performance in the horror movie, like as opposed to you know that kid from the Babadook. You know, I mean, like let's... oh boy, oh, I mean he was right. supposed to make <laughs> you want in my ears. to. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. It. give me the give me that gun with the four bullets already. Uh, um, well, you said Billy is a good boy, but what about the bad boy, Norm? Shermanator. Chris Owen. Hey, Shermanator. Also, yeah. uh, Angus. He's the best friend of Angus. He is the best but friend of Angus. But he's never in, uh, not going to be the Shermanator. Like, sorry, kid. Always. Yeah. And I guess Darabont said that he didn't know that he was in, he forgot that he was in American Pie. And I wonder if in hindsight, if he had known, he'd, he would have cast him. Mm. Um, I think he was still, he was doing a bunch of stuff at that time. You know, he's, yeah. he was a child actor. A All right. Actor. Oh, Melissa McBride, we didn't really talk about. It's hard to like, d- Melissa McBride is I know. so great in that one scene. She is. The one scene. And by the way, I don't have kids, but I would say that it makes sense that the audience would say, don't go out there. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, I, so her surviving. It also I'll makes think, sense that she would though. Yeah. Like she's like, my eight year old is watching my five year old. Like to, yeah. I gotta go. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, are you going to get killed the moment you walked out the door? That's the thing. It's that's true. But that's, again, that's why I don't think it's a scold at the end of the movie by any means. I just think that. Shit happens. <laughs> she made it out. She lived. So people don't, they die. You know, it's just the way, the way it works. Well, speaking of death, to round this out, who has the worst death in this movie? Oh. Oh, I think the Alexa Davalos character. Yeah, I think that's the, pretty bad. Uh, oh, no, no, no. The MP. Oh, the, the MP. The MP at the pharmacy. Yeah, that's true. That's the MP at the pharmacy is pretty fucking bad. out of his oh. body. Especially when his body yeah. falls to the ground and explodes oh, yes. into spiders. Like how... Eaten alive. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. That's fair. Oof. Yeah, great stuff. Ollie's Ollie's like a second too, maybe. That's pretty bad. Yeah, getting ripped Split in half. half. Feels like it's kind of yeah. Quick. At least it's quick, but I think Ollie hurts me more than it hurt Ollie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it hurts it my soul. For him. <laughs> yeah. Like if it was that kid from the Babadook who got lifted <laughs> up and torn in half. Like, oh well. I mean, this is a five star movie. Be like, get him out of here. <laughs> now we're talking. Get him out of here. Um. Okay. It's the last bit. Here are all the cast members that would graduate with Darabont to The Walking Dead. Jeffrey DeMunn, Melissa McBride, Lori Holden, Juan Gabriel Pareja, Sherry Dvorak, Sam Whitworth, hey, I'm from Miami, uh, Brandon <laughs> O'Dell, I probably got it wrong anyway, Julio Cesar Cedillo, uh, and Tiffany Morgan. Mm. It's a huge cast. It's a lot Where of people. Same casting director. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, and also the crew came over too, so... Um, well, look, that? you know, I, I I watched. There's not really a place for this, but the reason that Frank Darabont isn't really working a lot anymore has nothing to do with the people he works with on his sets. No, he had he uses the same cast for 20 years, with the exception of this movie. He usually uses the same crew, and I even watched an interview with the Sarah Wayne Callies did with John Bernthal on his podcast, and they talk about the Darabont exit from Walking Dead. They were all going to leave with him. Mm-hmm. Oh. They were, this was not some bad situation that something happened with a cast member. This was solely Darabont's and vice versa inability to, to deal with AMC and, and vice versa. And I think that's what always held him back is that for better or worse, he was never able to concede. He always had his vision. And it was very hard, I think, to work with studios and vice versa yeah. so yeah. i just want to say that like the people who work with them love them it's just yeah. the the, uh, the uh, i mean the, can the you heads uh, of, of company that don't 
like you watch the behind the scenes stuff and i'm just yeah. like that's just what i love about him like he looks like he's just having a blast yeah. Yeah. and he looks like he's so passionate i mean talk about i mean i know i mentioned the shinier like complete opposite of mm-hmm. Kubrick. yeah like oh, yeah. his enthusiasm and joy like he just looks like just so adorable yeah it really that was that was came that came to mind while watching it too rachel it's just that how did they the amc just absolutely smeared him and hey look to their uh to his credit he won that lawsuit last year so he's getting like 200 million dollars or something like that so for in royalties going forward why do they have to destroy just great people like i know (laughs) and it's and it's sad i mean you really do gotta i'll share this in the socials but randall um roller colburn obviously the of here uh he interviewed darabont for the anniversary of shawshank and you know being the constant reader that he has had to ask him more questions about, you know, beyond Shawshank. And it's a great interview. And he talks a lot about um, the what ifs of what he had beyond, um, you know, Walking Dead and Mob City. And he wanted to do the long walk. And he kind of gives his, he talks about how he was going to probably bring the, the documentary feel of what he had with The Mist and obviously with Walking Dead and bring it into the long walk. And it's just, you look back and you're like, fuck, man, we were just absolutely robbed of great stuff. And, um, it's sad. I mean, he's kind of burnt out. He was also on um, uh, the McGarris podcast for Postmortem a couple of years ago, maybe last year. And he talked about how he even has a script that was like a, a Stanley Kubrick idea that he had reworked as, I think it's something to do with like the post-Civil War or something. And he says- Was it's it Napoleon? I th- no, I don't know if it's that. It's, I mean, that's it's obviously a, not post-Civil War, everybody. Don't come after me. I'm just saying, <laughs> but I, it, it I, was, I know that's been a, a just-getting script. He calls it, was the, he says it's the best thing he's ever written and he can't get funding for it because, you know, we live in an era where anyone just, everyone wants just the, you know, the sixth or seventh fucking Marvel movie again. Or no, not sixth or seventh. I'm talking 56th or seventh movie. Anyway, that's, well, that's why I'm, I'm also like, I'm also kind of at peace with him not coming back. Yeah. In a lot over. of ways, because what if he came back and did like, you know, Doctor Strange 3? Oh, kill me. You know what I'm no, talking yeah. about? Same yeah. me? So yeah. we're good. You know, yeah. I think we're good. We're good. That would be what you'd call a nightmare and uh, not so much a dreamscape, which is our next <laughs> section, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. All right. Look, the next few sections are speed rounds because we've been here for about three hours. So uh, let's get this going. Nightmares and dreamscapes. We'll go around once and each share one thing we loved and then go around again and digress on our grievances. Justo, what is one thing that we haven't been able to discuss that you loved about this movie? Oh my God, what haven't we discussed? (laughs) That's the real question. I know, that's the thing. You could also go in your grievance. Actually, just double up. You Do know, honestly, you love, one I think it's like. the thing I loved. The grievance would be, I wish that this could have just been black and white from the beginning. Yeah. Mm. So no debate. That's really my only true grievance. Yeah. Um, it's as good as it was, as it's going to be. Otherwise, I think it's, yeah, that's my, or that's as, my, uh, that's my, nightmare. as Jack says, as good as it gets. Uh, <laughs> I think you say, as Jack says, you make me want to be a better man. <laughs> you make me want to be a better man. Um, Ashley. One thing you love, one thing you hated. The building of dread in this movie, I think, is is uh, fantastic. I think that a lot of other films should take notes. Again, one thing I hated, the mist clearing up at the end. I don't get it. I don't no. understand why it did. So you just want the soldiers, but not the mist. Well, the soldiers are fine, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I really just kind of... 
I don't know what I want. I don't I don't think I necessarily want David to get out of the car and get eaten. I thought maybe an interesting ending would be to shoot everyone in the car and then have the radio transmission come through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which would be Ooh, that would a be what cool. the fuck moment of like, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. Um, I don't know how it would work with like, you know, mass audiences, but I just fucking hate that that miss clears up right then. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. why? It just clears out. It just clears what out. What did they it's do? They made the, the sacrifice. Like, burning it off. Burning. Yeah. yeah. You like, heard the fire? It's like, wow. it was a sacrifice. It was, they killed uh, Billy and Amanda. No, um, no, I'm not doing that Reddit bullshit. I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> I hate that stuff. Rachel, one thing you love, one thing you hated that we haven't been able to discuss yet. Sure. I'm going to be really specific here. So I love when they're going into the loading bay and the door comes up and the mist, how it comes in right there. Like it looks really thick. Yeah. And it just like rolls in. I just, oh, the way that's executed is just so good. I just loved it. You like felt it. And I don't know. I just thought I love the physical mist in this and then hate it. Okay. So there's the character of his, what's his name? It says Ambrose. Oh, yeah. um who's played by buck taylor he's like that got that big mustache yeah. oh yeah and when they go outside and they're like making their break for it and he ends up dying and he's like running through the cars i think it's because it's cg the way he's running for some reason reminds me of the grandpa and charlie and the chocolate factory <laughs> <laughs> like stumbling around the house yeah like he's just like kind of slow like the way that he's running he's like ah, ah. I don't know. It's not convincing. I just hate the. Yeah, way I couldn't tell if that scene was in slow motion or if he's just running weird. I can't <laughs> he's tell. I also, weird. I, I also, was th- every time I watch it, I go like, "This is your one shot to get the fuck out of here. Why are you ro- all running in different directions? Like, it makes no sense to me." But look, it was yeah. chaos. Um, yeah, so that's it. Okay, okay. I, I love the opening, I, I, even down to the way the title fires up on the screen. The, the screen with like the portrait of the storm. I just think it's like I'm in. I love this mm-hmm. this 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 feel. I love the look. It's framed great. My hate is still the it's the it's not just the I like the gut punch of the troop showing up, but I just think seeing Melissa McBride in the truck is just too much. I just think it's just like you, you don't need that extra added punch. And I think for me, it still kind of muddles the themes a little bit. I, I I actually feel a little bit better about it coming out of this episode, but it still is like, eh, do we need it that much? Like it, it just seems like it's layered on a little too thick. Um, yeah, and that's you know it's a minor grievance, but it's still a grievance. Um, look, I'm. I don't know if it's because it's 30 degrees outside right now and I'm fucking shivering and I have my, my air off, but I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting a little chill, although it could be because we're coming across the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person because Whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. All right. Real quick. I mean, what scared us? <laughs> What's the scariest moment for you in this movie? Uh, Ashley, go for it. My The part that like stops my heart 
is at, right after the um, scene in the loading dock when they go outside and they meet by the beer cooler and they're kind of going over everything. They're like, what are we going to do when one of those things get in gets in here? And um, I think Sadler says, we close the door. And then Ollie says, the entire front of the store is made of plate glass. Mm. And they slowly look towards the front of the store and realize the entire front of the store is just... Yeah. Not bulletproof glass. Yeah. It's just glass. Mm-hmm. And it like every single time I see it, I get goosebumps because that is something that like maybe you wouldn't think of right away. Yeah. And then yep. when you do make that realization, it's like, what the fuck are we like, going to do? do? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a ticking time bomb at that point. Yeah. It's o- um, it's only a matter of time before yeah. something tape gets and, in. Duct tape and dog food bags. Yeah. Duct seriously. Jesus. Rachel, scariest moment for you. The rope. Yeah. Ooh. When the Ooh, when yeah. what's his face the Stephen King calls yeah. is walking out yeah. and Bachman. you see it go up. Oh yeah, yeah. is really creepy because then you realize like oh they're oh shit like something has got him and then it just falls and then they bring it in and it gets I don't know it's like so simple but so effective. So is effective. that is that the uh, JPEG snapshot iconic scene of this movie? Like when you think of the mist, is that like the scene, the wire scene? What, like pulling the rope in with the like, blood on yeah, it? Yeah, like carries the prom with the fire. Yeah, shining the axe is the is the wire scene with the mist. I, I, the mist, like the shot of them holding the wire, is that no. the most iconic? I don't it's got to so. be that creature at the very end. Creature at the end, I think, yeah. would I be think the of. iconic. Yeah, is that your scariest moment, Justin? Uh, no, the scariest for me is specifically in black and white, that entire pharmacy sequence. Mm-hmm. Especially terrifying. watching in black and white with the light reflecting off the dark. It just looks, it even looks great in color, honestly, but that black and white version of that is just amazing. Yeah, I think I think you've all named the ones I have. I mean, I think looking back now, even growing up, the scariest moments of Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead or or any of these you know, pandemic movies, I guess, in a way, um, is when you just hear about, like, the inevitability, right? So, like, when I think about Night of the Living Dead, it's, I, the, the thing I always go to is just that one shot of the zombie, like, in the background. And having seen it, you know what it is. And every time I watch it, I just think it's so scary just to see him wandering out there. And it's the same way with just seeing the mist on the, ra- the, the clouds and everything's kind of normal and seemingly they're just gonna have a day where they clean things up and maybe david's gonna repaint the dark tower picture i i just and i just i watched that again and again and it's just so like you just feel the weight of dread and so that looming feeling and, and probably a lot of that has to do with the fact that i'm from florida and so i when you see like the hurricanes in the distance it's like oh shit what's gonna happen um but for me that's that's what always gets me every time and it's so early on and that's the genius of this movie is that i'm already fucking scared so the good news is that when i'm scared i get a little worked up <laughs> and sometimes that's why you know Halloween's good because you get a little Halloween treat, some candy, some sweets, maybe some pound cake. After all you've been done, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. I'm imagining a neighbor. Yeah, being like, here, here's some mini Snickers, and here's a 
pound, pound cake, cake. in the wrap. <laughs> my mom's like, you can't eat this. It's not wrapped in right. But uh, oh, it's no. My Razor blades was. in the pound cake. Yeah, yeah right, it might, you never know. I'd still eat it. But uh, the mist is you open the candy bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh! <laughs> spiders all screaming like sadly. Like, ah! 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 All right. I wanted to bring up the Amanda sequence here because there's no pound cake in this movie. But the one thing that was cut out was the sex scene. So in the Thank novella, God. Amanda and David have sex. Now, I'm not going to lie. I would have been fine seeing Jane and Holden go to the Bone Zone together. They're both very beautiful people. And I well, think in the real world. world in yeah, real I'm life, not going to yeah. complain about it. But <laughs> the if they were to stick to the, the, the novel, and Darabont's very big on, on you know sticking to the, the, the source of material, one way that they were going to do it is that they were going to ha- be having an affair. And, oh, or, no. you know, lingering affair. And I think that's too much, but um, would the sex scene just absolutely ruin this movie? Mm, I ruin, would not. Ruin's a strong word, yeah. but I don't want it. I think enough people would be turned off by it mm-hmm. that they would lose some sort of, um, not not respect necessarily for Tom Jane's character, for David. But I think there would be a lot of people who just like would not understand, and it, it would he would lose a little bit of support from the yeah. audience well, and I both think. of them yes. because like she would True. know that he's married, and so it's like you it takes away from both of them. And you yeah. want to talk about any like alleged sham issues, you know? Yeah. The ending of this movie would have had another layer to it. So. That's yeah. true. Yeah. At that yeah, point, I don't. I don't think you need. I'm happy it's not there. All right. Me too. Well, I'm happy where we're going, which is a place that we've. We're always at, to be fair. It's a little, little place that we like to call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. So in King's Dominion, we basically point out, like Rick Dalton in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, when we see King references or any connections to King. And this film has a number of tasteful ones. Um, so we can round robin this mm-hmm. until we are running out of uh, uh, references or Easter eggs to hatch. Justin, what is a, what is a, a slice of King's Dominion? <laughs> Not a slice. We just well, I'm going to cut this cake. off. I'm, a, I'm actually going to do a little, uh, a little pivot. This oh. is called Darabont's Dominion. Oh. <laughs> because I was listening to the movie and I heard a name of a character and I went, oh, what's the story with this? So um, in, the, in the novella, The Butcher, mm-hmm. his name is McVeigh. But in the movie, his name is Mackie. And Vic Mackie is the name of the Michael Chiklis character on The Shield. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that's like, cool. that, has to be, yeah. that has to be a nod. That's great. Right? I like that. That has to be a nod. So I yeah. noticed that. And there you go. That's, that's my first one. Ashley, what'd you say? Um, I, I didn't really have any on, on my list. I, I did notice the, uh, Obviously, the big one would be the the painting at the beginning, mm. the Dark Tower painting, which I said something to my husband, and he was like, are you sure that's not Clint Eastwood? And I was like, sit down. <laughs> hey. <laughs> because you're not... ways it is Clint Eastwood, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah they got stopped with dirty hair. That's true. Yes, that, that, the, well, we'll save that for a second. Um, yeah. Rachel, you got one? Yeah. Uh, Lisa Gerard from Zed Can Dance also scored two episodes of the Salem's Lot TV miniseries in 2004. Wow. Let's keep it positive. Uh, I, wonder if, <laughs> I wonder if she and Andre Brower uh, hit it off on the set. No, she's like, she wasn't there. Um, uh, all right. So early on, you could see the Castle Rock Times. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, which Justin pointed out, which we'll share on our socials, is just gobbledygook in uh, the, the actual the writing, article. It's just nonsense words. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Um, All right. Yeah, um, you go. Oh, Brent says WZON is off the air. That's a Stephen King station mm-hmm. in Maine. Do you know that? Well, there's one more radio uh, reference in here, too. Um, oh, I missed it. Yeah. Should I just say it now since we're talking radio? Yeah. Did anyone get it? Did you? Did anyone see the other radio no, reference? No, I don't think so. So Norm is wearing a shirt from WKIT. Oh, right that's and that's Maine. the other one. So that's, oh, yeah, that's one of the. See, that's so cute. It came out around the time of it, right? Isn't that what we were told? Yep. And so yeah, the artwork is the the artwork on the T-shirt is uh is by Glenn Chadbourne, who did a lot of the artwork that we saw when we were out in uh, Bangor. So awesome, um, very cool. Um, Rachel, do you have another one? I mean, I don't know if you guys caught it, but the pharmacy was called King's Pharmacy. I did not catch that. (laughs) Yeah. I really did not. Love it. I did not catch that. It's like on the windows. I didn't even see it. I was so (laughs) afraid for these people walking inside. I guess I missed it. I swear I did not see the King's Pharmacy. Yeah. Um, Should we call it Tabitha's Pharmacy or something like that? Tabby's Tabby's. Pharmacy. A little more, a little less obvious. But uh. Uh, Justin, do you have another one? I mean, Mrs. I mean, I know it's kind of a religious thing, but Mrs. Carmody does say my life for you yeah. at a certain point. That's true. That's true. Very trash can man. Yeah. Or trash can man from the stand. So. So this is crazy. Um, I didn't. I actually didn't even catch this really when I was watching it, but so obviously Dark Tower poster in the beginning. He's doing it's the the gunslinger. But the there's another poster if you look closely that's mm-hmm. supposed to be little Georgie Dembro. Um, that's I it. thought that too. Yeah the, yeah, the balloon, right? Yeah. 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 Um and uh and then also there's a faceless figure in a yellow ra- overcoat, which could be a low man from mm. the hearts in Atlantis. Um and that's those are things that I saw that were that somebody pulled online. Um I didn't necessarily see all of it, but I, I certainly could tell that there was definitely another reference there. These are tasteless Easter eggs. I, I tasteful Easter Easter, Easter yeah. eggs. They're not the obvious ones that are like that take you out of the movie, like you know, as we always love to say, Cujo and Dark Tower. Um, I I just want to. I mean, I just can't get over the fact that Drew Struzan did these yeah. posts, like did those paintings. Just yeah, he awesome. he he did all the posters for Blade Runner and Star Wars and Harry Potter and everything Spielberg. And Raiders, like this guy is yeah. amazing. So the fact that they hired him to do this one. You know these paintings in there, just those little details. I think it's just so cool. So, and they had, they had a, and, and he, they must have been pals too, because I, I think I know he did later on in the DVD stuff. But isn't the posters for Shawshank like Shawshank and, and Green, Green Mile? Mile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Like, I, I just couldn't tell if they were for the reissues or not. But um, does anybody have any other ones? That's it. That's it. Um, no, there there was a book rack filled yep. with like Stephen oh, King books. Yep. I kept yeah. looking for that because I think somebody, I think Mike, you mentioned it's, it. It's remember. right when the fire starts, so you really can only see it in a quick glance. Oh, um, it makes sense because fire starter. That's true. <laughs> That's a book by Stephen King. Um, do you know what some of the books are on there? I, in the making of, they find they they show a shot of them hanging out by the rack, and I could take a, a glance of a couple of them. Oh gosh, the little kid in yeah. that making of, he's like holding it up, and he's like, "This is it." Yeah, got a clown named Pennywise, and it's like so cute. It's, it's so cute. <laughs> And then Billy put the book back. They're like, Continuity. get it back. You're fucking everything up. The wastelands. You got two cameras. It's got the wastelands, Cujo, and Cell, I believe, uh, <laughs> which is in there. So fun. Cell. Um, All right. <laughs> and then the only last one I have is the David calls his son Big Bill, which is the nickname of Bill Dembro in it. Oh, yeah. 
So, and then obviously I mentioned before the way that the tentacle dissipates is a lot like from a beer gate. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A so, lot of wasteland, funny yeah. stuff going on. Oh, sure. totally, totally. Also, there's so, I mean, all the act, there's so many like cast and crew connections that we could oh, be yeah. here all day. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And we uh, have been but, here all day. So and we, we have been here all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why we need to gather our thoughts, head to the checkout, where we can get our bag before we hit the road, but also give our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. All right, Justin, kick it off. Why don't you have one final uh, excerpt that I found? This is an interview that Darabont gave with, to a shock till you drop back in the day. He said about the, the themes and the politics of the movie. He goes, I don't think it's ever not relevant. I mean, it does go back to the Lord of the Flies and Monsters of Do on Maple Street and Lifeboat. It's a study of human nature approach to things, and human nature isn't always glorious as it is in Shawshank. Sometimes not our best, intention, not our best instincts come to the fore, so it's never my view and not relevant. But boy, in the 21st century, has become more and more relevant, hasn't it? It was one of the things that really got me to take it off the back burner, like you said, Mike, and put it on the front burner because it is a subversive horror movie that has more in its mind than just the beasties. And it winds up being a pretty pointed metaphor and allegory, as you say. That's what makes it so exciting to make a movie like that. And love it or hate, love it or hate this movie, because there's definitely, it's polarizing in a lot of circles. It is, yeah. At least there's something to talk about. Mm-hmm. And look, if you love or hate, let me put my old man yells at Cloud. If you love or hate Thor, Love and Thunder, there's nothing to talk about. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to talk about. Really and so for that is why I get a little upset when I think about the fact that due to some faults of his own, like we discussed, it's crazy that Frank Darabont has not made a movie in 15 years and will probably never make a movie or a show again. Um, haven't got that out of the way. I, uh, <laughs> if I can pitch one more thing, if they ever do an oral history in the making of this, they have to call it duct tape and dog food bags. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which something always says. <laughs> this, as I said earlier, has just grown so much in my estimation as the, over the last fifteen years. I think I could go back and forth between what the what one through three are in my favorite King adaptations, and even you know five through ten. But this is my fourth favorite Stephen King adaptation, and I don't see that moving down anytime soon. If I'm mm. being honest with you, uh, fingers crossed for. Oh, they, something! Oh God, they just announced something coming out. But well, by the time this episode comes out, who gives a shit? So yeah, I'm gonna give this. What are we giving it? What's the rating for this? Is oh, this a it's a one clown through five noses? Pennywise clown noses. All right, well, yeah. I'm gonna give this four and a half bright yeah. red Pennywise clown noses. Uh, yeah. Check it out in black and white if you can. I'll say that. Absolutely, uh, Ashley, go for it. Yeah, I mean, I the mist is uh, one of my favorite of of Stephen King's stories in general. I think it's just so well done, and I think that it's so scary. Uh, much like 1408 in that like start to finish it's just dread um and i think that this is one of the best stephen king adaptations and i just think that there's so much about this movie that is beautiful and haunting and heartbreaking and um everything from the performances to the creature design i really just think it's underrated i don't think enough people give this movie the credit it deserves and i 
I too am going to give it four and a half Pennywise clown noses, and it would be five if the mist didn't clear up. <laughs> they should have stuck to the title. The yeah. mist, damn it. <laughs> should have stuck to it. Keep it in there. Rachel, take it away. Yeah, I. to me, this movie succeeds pretty much on every level. And I mean that as like as an adaptation, it succeeds. Like I feel like it's a very worthy, honest, great tr- adaptation of King's work and his story. It's a well-executed director's vision. Like what Darabont wanted to make, I think he succeeded at making it. It's a great story. It makes you think. Um, I love the ending. I love the, you know, the, the chutzpah that it took to do that. Like, I think that that's incredible. Everything I think is the casting. It's great. And I, what gets me is there's in one of the things I watched for this somewhere in there in my notes, um, Darabont says, I hope that this one counts. Mm. And that just like, if I think about it too much, it like makes me tear up because <laughs> I think that that's like so sweet and yeah. like touching and just like such an honest statement from somebody like that, because I think there's a lot of him and his heart and his soul in this movie. And I think that that comes across in so many different ways. And, you know, uh, Mr. Darabont, if you're listening, this one does count for sure, without yeah. a doubt. Um, so, yeah, I give it four and a half. Um, bright red Pennywise clown noses. Fair, fair. Well, I wrote out something when I was on the treadmill yesterday. So if it sounds like I'm reading, well, I am. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's one mis- misspelling. It's, it's all like- misspelling and everything. Yeah, it's just sweat everywhere and just blurring it all. Um, okay, so basically, you know, like it's one thing to make a fun and memorable monster movie. I've seen it done a million times before. But it's an entirely different game to make a monster movie at this level. And what level is that? Well, a serious dramatic thriller with monsters within. Despite his run and gun shooting style, I'd argue Darabont treated the story with the same care and precision as he did with Shawshank or The Green Mile. And I think it shows. Call it autorism, call it a passion project, call it whatever you want. But ultimately, it's just top tier workmanlike filmmaking. The likes we just don't see in this genre too often. It's like Peel these days. It's, he's an event. His movies are appointment pop culture makings. And The Mist should have been that in 2007 because it has all the elements. But we just took it for granted at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've said my piece about literally every facet of this film today on Jane's everyman qualities, on Darabont's commitments as a writer and filmmaker, the grit, the gore, the unflinching attitude to be as merciless as possible. And all of these make this for me truly the last great, unmistakable Stephen King movie. And I love, love, love 2017's It. But this film just doesn't have the the, the advantageous IP that Mm -hmm. is Pennywise the Clown. Instead, it's just about the execution, the story, the characters, the tones, the themes, the punch, and that's all Darabont. So this is a fiver for me. I know Mm -hmm. I keep giving these fives out on these fucking long watches. It just happens (laughs) that we're covering the best fucking movies in this canon. and one of my big hot takes this time watching it is that this might be my favorite Darabont. Um, because mm. for me, it's that marriage of where he came from, what he went to do, and how he can mingle them all together. And it's that, what I was saying, that prestigious genre movie. And God, I would kill for, move, for more movies from him, as we've all outlined here, whether it's The Long Walk, whether it's that Kubrick script he's got in his drawer. But at the same time, watching it now, like, 
I kind of love that he went out on this. I think it's it's a genre film that's like the greatest hits of everything he could bring. And it's the movie that I'm sure he wanted to see when he was uh, finally fall, first falling in love with movies. So hell of a closer if it's uh, to be a closer. But I'll uh, I'll keep my hope. Something that I guess our characters lose in the mist. And, uh, <laughs> but hope that he comes back, you know? You have Shawshank. It does. Yeah, they do have it there. Well... I've got three bullets here in my hand and there are four of us. No, I'm just joking. That's too bleak. That's too bleak. So uh, let's just save them for the monsters and we could head to Boston. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, or Hartford. Yeah. I'm sure neither of you are going there with me. So why don't you tell us or our listeners, I should say where you're going next. Justin, what's happening with the Halloween? Well, I'm not sure exactly when this is going to be airing, but we just this Friday. up this Friday. So yeah. I guess we're about to wrap up our coverage on Evil Dead. Yeah. Uh, this mm-hmm. is our, so, but we, this is not, it's not our season finale on Halloweenies, a Halloween no, franchise it's... podcast, but we're wrapping up the coverage at least right now on the Evil Dead series. We've got some other episodes coming up later this month and please be sure to check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Halloweenies pod. We cover a lot of movies that we don't get to cover because they're not necessarily horror franchise entries. So uh, a lot of commentaries over there, a lot of deep dives, a lot of, bonus eps look you'll never run out of content if you're if you haven't listened yet i'll put it that way honestly between these two podcasts like there's just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pop culture content yeah it's it's ridiculous it's it's a spoils worth um rachel what are you currently working on yeah uh, i've got a few things coming out later this month over at dread central an interview with Colin Stetson about the menu. Oh, uh, nice. Colin Stetson, the composer, also did, I don't know, maybe you've heard of it, Hereditary. Yeah. Um, and so that's pretty, that move, yeah, the menu's great. I'm, I'm dying to see that. the menu. Yeah, I really want to see it. this one. Yeah. Um, and then also I interviewed Michael Yazerski. He scored the Pikmin's model episode of the Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity, worked with Keith Thomas, um, oh. not on Firestarter, yeah, but say, on yeah. The Vigil. Uh, anyways, so did that and then, yeah, so those should be out in the next, I don't know, week or so. Very cool. Very cool. Ashley, what's weird in your realm over at Keep It Weird? (laughs) I always do the puns for weird. I apologize. It's probably (laughs) getting so annoying at this point. We're we're weird central. Um, I think next what we have coming up, we're still wrapping up our alchemy series. So, um, we're going to do a hometown haunts episode, which is where mm-hmm. whatever guest we have coming on, wherever their home state is, we cover that state's most famous cool. hauntings, monsters, strange occurrences, et cetera, et cetera. And we just kind of take a look at the entire state and all the strange things within it. Very cool. You know, I on the last episode we did, the Firestarters, I mentioned a movie about alchemy that I was yeah, thinking of. Yeah, what were you and thinking it was, of? So it was As Above, So Below. Oh, yeah. okay. So that loses great. its way, I think, after a while. I think. Oh man, I it's. I I like it, but I, I, like I know it. what you're talking about. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, it loses the found footage aspect. Of, well, I'm like, wait, what, why are you still holding this camera? Yeah, that's I know. when they you're in that's hell. When they kind of starts to take it away from me. I think it's <laughs> you're in hell. <laughs> like, what are you uh, this thing for? Well, we are in hell, and I <laughs> I think we all like to leave before people start drinking the Kool Aid. So before we do, I need to remind you, listeners, to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast and also to follow us on socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, which seems to be having its own uh, problem of some magnitude right mm-hmm. now. I want to leave you at that. 
But next week, you'll be hearing the song Susanna. And until then, we'll be seeing you over long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Nice. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>